Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia. A global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com uh, And another one, and another one. It's so gorgeous. It's another beautiful day in North Carolina, y'all. Y'all should really be here to see it. Dwight Mullen grew up in South Los Angeles in the 1960s. Then, as now, it's a tough place to grow up. But he managed to find comfort and support at the Seventh-day Adventist school he attended. Dwight eventually became the first in his family to attend college. Pretty soon, Dwight became a teacher himself. One of his first jobs out of school was teaching public policy in Nigeria. Today, he's a political science professor at the University of North Carolina at Asheville. For a decade, Dwight has worked with his students on a State of Black Asheville project, an annual report on racial disparities in Buncombe County. Dwight's work led him to receive the UNC Board of Governors Excellence in Teaching Award in 2014, and Dwight Mullen joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good to have you here. Let's uh, let's take you back to South Los Angeles growing up. You grew up in the Watts neighborhood of L.A. What did that neighborhood look like when you were growing up? Well, I, I lived on 104th Street, and um, we used to call 103rd Charcoal Alley. That was where most of the uh, rebellion hit in 1965. Um, and, you know, it was, it was, there, there was an alley that connected 103rd and 104th Street. And so when folk hit the stores, they were dropping things off in our front yard. And I have new school clothes next, <laughs> the next semester. But, <laughs> you know, we were, we were so well into uh, Watts until we were one of the families that folk turned to, I guess, um, um, when help was needed. Tell us about about growing up and, again, you know, sort of what the neighborhood looked like leading up leading up to that rebellion and, you know, kind of what, what it was like for you on those streets. Well, you know, I was in elementary school and uh, moving into middle school. And for me, that was the time when my first contact with LAPD happened. Um, I remember being followed uh, from the bus stop um, to home, uh, being baited by LAPD. That was one of my first real memories of confrontation. 
Um, I, I remember the gangs in Watts uh, before the rebellion. Uh, they were called the Slossons, and that was the biggest gang. And you know, it was it was it was something to be affiliated because it meant that uh, you couldn't you couldn't really depend on LAPD to protect you or LA County sheriffs or the California Highway Patrol or any other law enforcement agencies that overlap. Um, you had to depend on local folk, and the local folk who protected you were the neighborhoods and the gangs. Were you were you a member? No, I was too young. I, I was much too young. Uh, my brothers, uh, they were my protection through the gangs. They had affiliations. And, and this is an interesting point. It's when you know when the local authorities and local you know social and political structures fail to provide for people, they just find another way. Yeah, there was no choice. I mean, there just was no choice. I mean, if you were going to be safe and go to the store, or we used to call it getting jumped. <laughs> if you weren't going to get jumped, uh, you needed to. People needed to know who you were and and who who had your back. You talked about gangs, but there were other more conscious political ways of organizing. The Black Panthers were organized, and they were also delivering services. Yeah, you know, right right before right before Watts burned, um, there were there, there were political organizations that it hardly get noticed now. Um, and one of them was it was involving a boycott of the local grocery stores because what what we found happening. I remember my parents talking about this, and they were one of the, the folk who met and and organized. They would get meat from the local chain stores uh, that had been discarded, and then repackage it and sell it in Watts. Um, one of my one of my jobs as a kid was that I had to I had to smell the food, I had to smell the meat before I had to bring it home because I had to be sure it was fresh enough mm-hmm. to eat. Um, and that that was happening before. And then when when it burned, it, it was it was it was probably I think. Looking back on it, one of the safest times I ever had in Watts was when uh, it was when there were no law enforcement. When there, there were, the National Guard had not, you know, the Army had not been sent in yet. And I remember there was just not any. There was no danger. There was no gangs. No was doing any, any any jumping. It was just one thing. It was it was pretty safe. It was pretty safe. What about uh, you, you talked about the, the these other organizations and the fact that these are probably mm-hmm. white owned businesses as well. And we're going to get to the uh, the state of Black Asheville later on in our program and talk about some of the things you find. But but ownership uh, ownership of property ownership of businesses is huge, and it was very important back then as well. And, and and not only was it almost completely white-owned, but it was also uh, they wouldn't hire from the neighborhood. I remember looking to be a bag boy. I couldn't even carry the groceries out from the local store. They just would not hire, and they wouldn't, you know, the banks would not give you money to to, to start your own business. And then after the riot, after, after folk rebelled and after folk carried on, uh, war and poverty funds came through. And my neighborhood organized, my blocks, you know, the, the rocks around my house organized along the lines of, I don't know if you ever heard of the Sons of Watts mm-hmm. and the Mothers of Watts. And what they did was organize the, the, so that we could handle the grants coming from the federal government through the war on poverty. In fact, that was that was actually my first job was being a, a neighborhood youth court member. I think that's one of the one of the things that uh, people don't fully understand or appreciate about the war on poverty, which was based in in large part on the North Carolina fund that preceded it. Um, that it wasn't just about money flowing into communities; it was about organizing so that local folk could actually make decisions about how the money could be spent, and that meant political uh, and social organizing uh, on a pretty good scale at the at the grassroots level. I mean, it, you know, it translated into things that really sound like nothing. But 
I could actually, you know, wear tennis shoes that wouldn't be pierced by glass because there was money now to hire folk to sweep the streets to get the broken glass out so we could play in it. We, you know, we could play on the streets. <laughs> Talk about that. And we, I mentioned the Black Panther Panther Party, but they played an important role in organizing too. I think your first dental exam uh, happened by they way did. Of, yeah. Oh no, no, no. They, the Black Panthers took one of the uh, storefronts that had been um, uh, closed up and reopened it as one of the headquarters, and they approached UCLA and USC to bring medical students and dental students into Watts to open clinics. So during that summer, they opened a clinic uh, at the local uh, elementary school. Literally, I, I'm not kidding, literally, people lined up for blocks mm. to get a medical or dental exam, and that was the first time a dentist had ever looked into my mouth. I, you know. Think about going to a dentist. Are you kidding? <laughs> well, tell us more about your family and how they came to live it in Watts. They were part of the Great Migration to the West, right? Yeah, my father. My father uh, left Mississippi. He joined uh, the military. Joined the Navy in eleventh grade. He just lied about his age, and, and he found himself uh, not wanting to go back to Mississippi. And ended up, he ended up actually working on the Hoover Dam and uh, making enough money gambling to, to to buy two homes in what was being turned over. We, you know, looking back on it, we don't we didn't call it that, but looking back on it, it was white flight out of Watson Compton, and so he became one of the first black homeowners in Compton and in Watts, and moved my grandmother and brother out to L.A. Uh, my mother, on the other hand, came out from Galveston, Texas, but that Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi movement, that's that's how we ended up in California. Eventually, you, you created the project called the State of Black Asheville. Tell us how that came about. It was following uh, Hurricane Katrina, and I had people who had been displaced and uh, I moved. I had people in my classes who were from Metairie, from New Orleans, and they were clearly traumatized, and I un- I needed to understand what was going on with them. And so in a public policy course, I, I offered, I-, I changed the curriculum, and we just said, look, if this thing, if a hurricane hit Asheville, who would be floating in the water? What would that look like? And it led to an examination of what's going on with public policy areas, and we arranged for the students who did the research to find out what was going on with the policies, we arranged for them to meet with the policymakers, and it turned into the first conference. Um, tell, nearly, go ahead. nearly four hundred people were there. Wow. Yeah. So, so you're looking at again this this disparity. Um, what what is the what did that look like that first report, and then how did it turn into an annual uh, an annual project? Well, we focused on on education, and but there were reports on healthcare and on housing. And there were reports on economic development and on criminal justice. But most of the data that students were able to generate came out of education and health care. And it was so shocking until, you know, it, it, we, we asked since the schools had been desegregated, since they were under you know, judicial order to desegregate, what were the areas that were being monitored by the courts and how have we fared from the time those orders were given to the time that, of, the, of the research? And in each of the areas, from hiring to graduation and retention through disciplinary rates, we found disparities by race. Um, um, for This was with the actual city schools. Mm. Uh, we've since in, 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 enlarged it to include the Buncombe County school system also. 
Uh, huge disparities. I mean, the 2015 report, just an unemployment rate, 17% for blacks, 6% for whites. We're talking about Buncombe County here. Uh, yes. Talk about wage disparities, uh, you know, uh, average monthly earnings for white folks, $2,100. Average white uh, monthly income for African-Americans, 1600 Huge disparities there. Life expectancy. How Then there's the question of whether or not these are these are structurally based or just, you know, problems that are happening within an African-American community. Yeah, I, I, I look at them as being structurally based and, and, and I see them as the next stage of desegregation is that we changed the laws, but we didn't change the administrative rules. We, we changed how we relate to each other formally, but we didn't address the informal mechanisms within our public with our public uh, arenas. And that's where the change, that's where Buncombe County commissioners, I think, have really stepped up with they just uh, appropriated $500,000 as an as an investment in the community to help close these disparities using the community's own ideas. Um, um, we'll be making decisions in a couple of weeks of who gets those grants. Well, what are some of those ideas? Again, what are some of the ways that you break down the structures? Because they become a dynamic that becomes self, self-replicating self at a certain point. And so how do you sort of crack that open and change the direction of these institutions to get better outcomes? Well, part of it is it's a much closer coordination between uh, home and school. Another is the idea that learning takes place not just in the classroom, but also outside of the classroom. I mean, a number of the areas, for example, are looking at basic skills and pedagogies, how those things are are, are happening. How are our children taught and can we do it in a different way that allows for better outcomes? I mean, those are some of the initiatives that, that I'm aware of, um, tutoring, mentoring, the idea of, of nutrition and health care, uh, health education, all those things that often are segmented in our lives of our children and in our community, but are somehow needing to be unified and coordinated. Is there an order of operations in attacking these? I mean, you look particularly at education, health care, and housing. Those are the three that stand out and where the disparities are the greatest. Um, again, is there, an order, is there a way to prioritize, or do you have to attack them all at once? And can you? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm of the opinion that they, that they need to be addressed simultaneously. And right now, we're looking at education and economic development as being primary, but there are also serious discussions with Buncombe County Superior Courts about uh, what will happen in, in dismantling what we think to be the pipeline to prison. And so diversion programs and expungement programs and alternative sentencing programs in order to keep from building yet another jail. I've seen what's around the corner. I've seen what's over the horizon. And I promise you, you niggas have nothing to celebrate. I know I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. For most of the two and a half years that I've been on this network here on News Talk 1010, I've also been a columnist at the Toronto Star. You guys know that. You may also know, if you've been following the news this week, that I am no longer a columnist at the Toronto Star. I stepped down from that position on Thursday. Uh, It was my choice, and I wrote a letter about it, which I posted online to much, much discussion. Let me explain, for those of you who have not heard the story. Um... About two weeks ago, I went into a police services board meeting in this city, as listeners will remember, and I disrupted that meeting. I said that I wasn't going to leave 
because our political leaders refuse to keep their promise and restrict police from having access to carding information. That's records on innocent people that are being kept in this city by our police. Those police continue to have that information, even though the politicians all say they want it to stop. They haven't done anything. So I staged a protest at the police services board meeting. Well, uh, this past week, I got a call from my editor at the Toronto Star, who asked me to come in and speak with him. And at that time, Andrew Phillips told me that my action at the police services board by disrupting the meeting and shutting it down was in contravention of the Toronto Star's policies around activism and journalism. So my editor didn't say you're fired. He didn't say we're even going to discipline you or do anything. He didn't say don't do it again. He simply said what you did was against the rules and I want you to know that. So I have decided that if it's against the Toronto Star's rules for me to be an activist in service of black liberation, while I am also writing for the newspaper, that I don't want to write for the newspaper anymore. So I wrote that in a letter on Thursday. I shared something else in that letter that I'd like to share with all of you, which is that uh, I've been struggling at the Star for the last year now, before any of this happened. And the reason is because a year ago, the board chair and at that time acting publisher of the Toronto Star, whose name is John Honderick, he called me out of the blue and asked me to have lunch with him. I'd never met him. I was writing once a week. I didn't know why the publisher wanted to speak with a freelance writer for the newspaper, but I went and I had lunch with John Honderick. And during that meeting, he told me that he believed that I was writing about race too much. And he asked me if I would diversify my topics. I've been dealing with that very quietly for the last year at Toronto Star, but it was right after that meeting with John Hondrick that I was cut from writing at the paper every week to writing every other week. So I put up with it silently, and I was deeply, deeply hurt and offended by the fact that somebody would come and tell me not to write about not only things that draw a huge audience for that newspaper, but things that are deeply personal and important to me as a person and to my community. But I kept quiet about it because I wanted to keep writing for the newspaper. But at some point, you have to decide what you want and what your values are and what you care about. And I decided that not writing for this paper was a better choice for me so that I can pursue my activism freely. Of course, the idea that you can't be both an activist and a journalist for the Toronto Star will come as news to my next guest. Naomi Klein is an award-winning journalist, an activist, the best-selling author of No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, and This Changes Everything. Naomi Klein's new book entitled No Is Not Enough, Resisting Trump's Shock Politics and Winning the World We Need, comes out on June 13th. She's joining me on the line from Toronto. Hey, Naomi. Hey, Des. Great to be with you. Thank you. So can you tell us when you uh, started writing as a columnist for the Toronto Star? Yeah. Um, well, first, first, I just want to say that, um, well, I feel, I feel really privileged to, to be able to have this conversation with you this week. Um, and I really feel like I should be interviewing you, not the other way around. And I'm going to... Um, going to try to ask you a few questions, if that's okay, because I think people really want to hear even more from you. Um, we talked about that a little bit. Yes. Um, but, 
And 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 I'm, I have to say, like uh, that, that that conversation with John Hondrick is it, it's um, it's particularly shocking. And and so you know, I, I want to say, as somebody who loves you and 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 deeply values you as a human being in the world, um, I want to say that I, I'm I'm happy that you have made a decision um, not to work somewhere that is disrespecting you, because nobody should um, you, you, nobody should provide. Um, valuable work uh, um, and and be disrespected, you know. Well, um, nobody should be disrespected at work. Period. Um, and um, it, it's 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 just outrageous that you have brought so much value, so many readers, um, so many eyeballs, so many clicks to the star, and to be scolded um, and and treated in this way is is really shocking. And 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 I'm just thinking, you know, my. Um, <laughs> My mother-in-law is Michelle Landsberg, and she, she was at the Star for many, many years as a staff columnist writing about women's issues um, five times a week. And I am pretty darn sure, and I know Michelle is listening, that, that she was never told she was writing about women's issues too much. You know, I just spoke to Michelle knowing that I was going to be speaking to you, and she was reminding me of the kind of advocacy that she did around, you know, keeping women's college hospital open, um, keeping daycares open, where the star was so proud of her activism that they would take pictures of her. She would use her column to solicit letters. To, for the example she gave was um, of a, 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 day, a daycare that was being closed down in 1980, and, um, and they encouraged readers to send letters to the star and then photographed her delivering the letters to Premier Bill Davis. So they were so proud of that activism. So what, you know, what is it about you, right? There's something about your activism that went beyond the star's brand, as a paper that engages in 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 uh, in advocacy journalism. Well, uh, you know, right? Kathy English, the public editor of the Toronto Star, wrote about why the Star has been uncomfortable with what I did at that meeting. And Kathy English basically said it's not even the fact that Desmond's an activist. Uh, she said that it's the fact that I became the story. Right. And she said this like ten times in her column that I became the story. Um, well, that just means you're you're an effective actor. I, I, right? I guess that's my crime. But um, well, I think there's. I mean, obviously, you know, there's there 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 are several things going on at once, right? I think there's um, there, there's there's anti-blackness. There's the image of a black man with his fist in the air that that clearly made people uncomfortable in a way that other forms of activism and advocacy have not um, at the Star, right? Um, there may be, you know, social relationships that were disrupted by that. You know, I don't, I don't know enough about that. Uh, but, um, but I think there's also this discomfort around civil disobedience, right? Um, so there's certain kinds of activism, you know, letters, petitions. Um, but there's something about, you know, sitting in and and taking, um, you know, putting your body on the line, right? And and that, you know, this is why I think. It's so important for the star to look sort of deeply at how systems of privilege reproduce themselves because the people who need to use those tools tend to be the people with the least power, right? You know, I started off saying that as on a personal level, I'm happy that you're not working somewhere that is, that is disrespecting you, um, that is not treating you um, the way they should treat um, not just a columnist in the star, but a star columnist. Um, and and that's been ongoing, right? I mean, I think it's been it was an outrage when they cut your column back. Um, so this is cumulative. Uh, but at the same time, I feel 
very sad for this city, um, uh, for the paper, because I think that Toronto Star is a very important paper at a time when uh, when journalism is uh, is is in crisis. Um, and and so while I am happy for you, I think this is, is is clearly the right personal decision and indeed the right political decision to to to, to draw that line. It has ramifications. So I'm wondering. How how you made how you made it knowing that knowing that you you know you you don't know who's gonna who's gonna replace you you will continue to to to, to write to have a voice but ha- that's never an easy decision. It wasn't, and I thought very hard about it before doing it. I was really upset with being called in, and not only just being called in to the newspaper and being told you've broken our rules, but not being invited after that to have a conversation about what that means and how I could work with my employer afterwards to be like, okay, so what do we do about this? You're uncomfortable with what I'm doing outside of my job as a columnist. Like, do you want to have a conversation? There was really no option there to do that. It was just kind of like, no, no, we just wanted to call you in to tell you you broke the rules and here are the rules. And I was so upset and uncomfortable with that that I went away and I, and I thought about it. And I said, how long... Am I going to be in this position and be angry and bitter and unhappy about the way that I'm being treated? Now, since I posted that letter on Thursday, uh, it's funny, a lot of the major news networks in Canada have reached out to me asking me if I'd like to write for them instead. While I'm honored and humbled by that, I hope they understand that I'm not going to change what I'm doing for them just like I wouldn't for the star. But I had to do this also because of something I mentioned in my letter of resignation, which is that there's a lot of young up and coming journalists, many of whom I am in regular contact with in the city. And a lot of the black journalists and journalism students that are young and upcoming right now are black women. And they are facing just as many barriers as I am, but then a whole bunch more on top that I never have to face as a black man. And I wanted to set an example I wanted to set an example with the privilege that I have that said, I won't just keep my mouth shut to keep this organization that's mistreating me happy. I would much rather serve the interests of my community and show uh, the next generation of black journalists, I will stand up for you. I will try to pave a path so that it's not as hard for you rather than just sitting here being quiet and taking a position that really wasn't doing it for me anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Haiti is on the list of what's supposed to be. Haiti, the people call, who are called Haitians, predominantly are people who are classified as non-white, who they're not supposed to ever have anything under the system of white supremacy except punishment <laughs> yeah. for being arrogant enough under Tucson to think that you, with your military skills, can take us over or tell us what to do. Immigration is often in the news, most often in connection with undocumented immigration or the fairness of various enforcement measures. But now we have a slightly different kind of immigration story. In the U.S. right now, some 50,000 Haitian migrants could be forced to leave within months after having lived here with permission for many years. They were able to stay because they received something called Temporary Protected Status, or TPS. After the 2010 earthquake that killed hundreds of thousands of Haitians, it deems their country too unstable for them to to return safely. The Obama administration extended temporary protected status for this group several times. Now the Trump administration has until May 23rd to make a decision. If the administration does nothing, those Haitians who have been allowed to live and work in the U.S. legally under this status will have to leave in July. 
About 4,000 Haitians who have temporary protected status live in the Boston area. So we called Marjean Perhat, Director of Refugee and Immigration Services for Catholic Charities of Boston. And we wanted to ask her how the people in her area are reacting to the uncertainty. People have been very scared. They're coming into us hearing on the Haitian news and radio that TPS might not be extended. They're coming and asking, well, am I qualified for anything else? They're asking, what am I supposed to do about my job? I like what I do. I'm working really hard. I have children here who are U.S. citizens, and they've never been to Haiti. People are very afraid. Do you have the sense that most of the the people who are living here currently would like to stay? They want to stay here in the United States right now because there's nothing for them to go home to. Even though the earthquake happened almost seven years ago, there's still so much infrastructure that needs to be built. You know, I was talking with one woman just the other day who lost her home. And she said she still has not been able to save enough money to rebuild that home should she need to be returned to Haiti. And she also has a four-year-old who's only lived in the United States her whole life because she was born here. And so it's very difficult for people to contemplate, what would I do if I went back home? Here I have a job. Here I have the ability to have my children in school you know, a stable environment that I'm providing for them, and they don't feel that that would be available to them right now in Haiti. On the other hand, uh, I think some might argue that temporary protected status means temporary, and that if it were to be a long-term amnesty program, it should be called that. I mean, what would you say to people who have that argument? We don't agree with that. We do agree that it it is temporary in nature, and the Haitian government themselves have directed their ambassador to ask the administration to extend TPS because they recognize that it's still an ongoing process and that temporary status doesn't mean that, you know, a country can be rebuilt in a matter of a couple of years. I mean, it's not meant to be a, a blanket amnesty or turn into a blanket amnesty program because people on temporary protective status are not eligible to ever apply to become a lawful resident unless some situations change. I think it's important to also mention that Haitians who are working here are paying taxes. And so you're talking upwards of millions of dollars that go into the Social Security Fund and into Medicare or Medicaid. That's Marjean Perhat. She's the Director of Refugee and Immigration Services for Catholic Charities of Boston. Marjean, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Never, never, never I say, for the Ku Klux Klan is here to stay. Never, never. Never I say, because the Ku Klux Klan is here to stay. A new play looks at what happens when the KKK comes into contact with Native Americans. It's based on real events, and it tackles the concept of racial purity in a surprising way. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards has the story from its latest run in Laramie. As the play What Would Crazy Horse Do opens, twins Calvin and Journey Good Eagle are grieving the death of their grandfather. They're the last two members of their fictitious South Dakota tribe, and in their despair are considering suicide. Then they get a knock on their door. It's a woman and her bodyguard. She hands them her business card, but Calvin is skeptical. Anyone could make a fake business card. Seriously, who makes a Ku Klux Klan business card? (laughs) That's Evan, the National Klan's imperial dragon. She's there to convince the twins to dance in an event promoting the preservation of racial bloodlines, indigenous 
and white. Calvin can't believe what he's hearing. So you're affiliated with the man who led the clan? We are the clan. This <laughs> <laughs> never used to happen when he wore the robes. Playwright and Lakota member Larissa Fasthorse says audiences often don't know how to react to this kind of humor. You'll see people laugh and then immediately stop. And you can see them thinking, oh, should I have laughed? Should I feel guilty for laughing? Fastor says she's glad to see that confusion because it means that people are doubting their deep-held assumptions about race. The play was actually inspired by historical events. Wandering a South Dakota museum, Fast Horse came across a flyer promoting a KKK event that included a powwow from the late 1920s. That just completely blew my mind. I, I couldn't imagine, one, why the Klan wants a powwow. Um, two, who would dance in that? Like, who are the Indians that are going to dance for the Klan? She interviewed tribal elders who said people danced because white Klan members were neighbors, and they asked them to. Fast Horse started exchanging emails with a Klan group. They told her they were trying to get away from messages of hate and violence and instead embrace cultural pride in being white. It was pretty disturbing to me that a lot of their practices and their interests overlap with Indigenous people. I mean, we don't want Indigenous people to go off the face of the earth. However, the only way to do that is to intentionally keep the, quote, blood pure. That's why Calvin and Journey are considering suicide. If they die together, they think they can take their tribe with them in its purest form. 16-year-old Talissa Littleson plays Journey, and this is relevant stuff to her. She says in her tribe, there's a real fear of losing her heritage. Every year they have a competition where about who can speak Northern Shan most fluently, and the person who won was like almost 40, so that was kind of like wow, like we need to teach the ones who are coming up our language. It's the first time acting for Little Son. And that's the point, says playwright Fast Horse, to get more Native Americans on stage. Fast Horse requests that whenever possible, Native Americans play Native American parts in her plays. But directors often hear that as a demand. She's had them tell her flat out they can't produce her plays because they won't be able to find Native actors. The Laramie company, Relative Theatrics, was the first to finally produce this play. Here's founder and director Anne Mason. For the last six months, probably, I have been reaching out, sending emails, making phone calls, telling them about the production and asking them to come audition and and try their hand at it. No spoilers, but let's just say what would Crazy Horse do doesn't end happily. But there is a happy ending for playwright Larissa Fasthorse. The Kansas City Repertory Theater picked up the play and is performing it through the end of May. For NPR News, I'm Melody Edwards in Laramie. All right, boss. This jersey that we wear today, it doesn't say Red Sox. It says Boston. Somewhere, Michael Che is enjoying a I told you so moment. The comedian upset a lot of us back in February when he described Boston as the most racist city I've ever been to. He made that statement during Saturday Night Live's weekend update. Cue the avalanche of local indignant responses, racist slurs and threats, and clueless comments aimed at Che. The black comedian was wrong, they said. He was a racist himself, said others. And many, many began their comments saying, I am white, but I've never seen the racism he's talking about.
Maybe they got it now, now that the racism black folks know about firsthand was center field, again, on the hallowed grounds of Fenway Park. Last week, it was Baltimore Orioles outfielder Adam Jones's turn to say he was not only called the N-word a handful of times, but was also pelted with a bag of peanuts for good measure. That rabid Red Sox fan and a few others were promptly ejected from Fenway, and a chorus of officials rushed to apologize, the Red Sox organization, Governor Charlie Baker, and Mayor Walsh. The mayor said, It is an unfortunate incident, and it should not reflect the city or who we are as Boston. Except, as Boston Globe columnist Renee Graham has written, it does. Both Chase and Jones's experiences are not surprising to those of us who must navigate Boston's racial climate in situations unseen by most white area residents. It's why comedian Che responded to an angry online comment from one woman by saying, talk to your closest black friend and ask them to explain it to you. Ironically, the day before the Jones incident, I had been in phone conversations with two people of color from out of town. They are both being courted for important jobs here. Each had asked mutual acquaintances for someone to talk to about the Boston they'd read and heard about. From two different people, the same question. Is it really that bad? Adam Jones was greeted with a standing ovation when he returned to Fenway the night after the taunting, but I know that can't erase the memory of the ugliness. Sadly, Jones says he's endured racist taunts in past visits to the Fenway ball field, but this time it was so bad he had to speak out about it. By the way, past and current Red Sox players of color have been slurred too. The president of the Boston NAACP observes that not only is there something about the climate here that allows people to feel comfortable shouting out these words, but that also the people around them would find it acceptable. Tanisha Sullivan's point was underscored just one night after Jones talked about hearing the N-word. Another rowdy fan screamed the slur at the Kenyan woman singing the national anthem. This is why I've always been reluctant to attend any sporting event in Boston, even if the offer came with VIP tickets. I'll add my voice to those who want to see policies that would go beyond the all-around apologies to Adam Jones. Permanently blocking them from Fenway, as the Red Sox did for the first time to that last fan, would certainly send a message. As Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said often, the law cannot make a man love me, but, he pointed out, behavior can be regulated. Whether fair or not, Boston's reputation as a city of racist incidents clings and is now further cemented. We'll really be Boston strong when we deal with the consequences of that reality. I'm Callie Crossley, WGBH, Boston's local NPR. Seattle's a great place to visit because it has, I guess you could say, a little bit of everything, but I like to think of it as a lot of everything. Non-white, half-black, ethnic. Those labels make some people cringe, and they can also sting. Rolina Joseph is an associate professor of communication at the University of Washington, and Shade Britt is a recent UW grad. They spoke about race and language with KUW's Patricia Murphy. Just to get things started, I will throw out a couple of words. Um, exotic, half-white, quarter Native American. Are these terms annoying, racist, or just condescending? Shade? All the above. 
I think that these are words that people use when they don't know what to say. I feel like they can be lazy at best and racist at worst. Dr. Joseph, what do you say? I think there is a difference between impact and intent in that if the intent was not to offend, then there's the possibility to go in there and to have a conversation. As Shani was saying, if the intent was simply to be lazy or to not care or perhaps just fall back on these old racist terms, then there's no room for dialogue. And that's what I'm really looking for is the opportunity to go in there and to actually have a conversation about language, how it affects us, how we feel demeaned by language and how it's a way that all of us can actually change our behaviors to do things like interrupt privilege. What if someone is called non-white or non-black? How are those terms problematic? Shade? The word non, it just seems like a negative. You are not something. And it's like, what exactly am I not? Am I not a full human being? Am I not? Again, I just feel like it's a way for people to describe others and to other them without being specific and saying what they mean. Oh, this person is non-black. Okay, that can mean a thousand different things. Yeah, and I think that what we're often looking for, what minoritized groups are often looking for, is for people to use the language that we want to call ourselves. And as Sade was referencing, no one calls themselves a non. That's not the way in which we identify. And so a term like people of color has come about with people of color choosing that terminology. And so it becomes an us term, which feels like we can then have some part in our self-definition. Exactly. I don't think anyone has ever asked me, hey, like, what do you identify as? And I was like, non-white. Like, I don't think that's ever happened in history. So let's just end it there. <laughs> like, Let's just bury that term, please. So it sounds like you do have a moment to perhaps give some education here to some people. Is that something that, you know, maybe you just don't feel like doing? Or is this an opportunity you always seize on? It depends. If I feel like it's a person who genuinely wants to know and they care about how I like to be addressed, then I will take the time. But I feel like as um, black people, especially black women, we are always um, expected to educate folks on things that they can easily look up on com. It's free. You literally don't have to pay a dime. She's always there and listening. But I feel like it's always expected that we have to educate people, and that's not our jobs. Dr. Joseph, what about in the classroom? I am under an obligation to educate. (laughs) (laughs) So not only am I a professor of communication and race, I direct a center, Center for Communication, Difference, and Equity, and where we're trying to actually facilitate racial dialogues. It's something that we talk about trying to call people in instead of calling them out. And I do believe there's actually is a value of calling out at at different moments. But of then, even if the calling out happens, to figure out how to call them back in so that we can actually enter into the conversation together again. Seattle likes to think of itself as a, a progressive and racially aware city. As women of color, how often do you hear these terms get used in the city? What is your experience, Dr. Joseph? I think all the time. I think that that this is part of our living in this world is you see race and you see racist intent coming out of people's mouths. Especially in the workplace. I've had a lot of racist interactions as a woman of color having to navigate um, being professional, but then also being able to be recognized as a human being (laughs) who needs to be respected and who needs to at the least be tolerated in a workplace setting. 
I feel like as being a woman of color has definitely forced me to stand up for myself and stand up for people who look like me, people who don't look like me. It's become imperative. So we'd like to think of ourselves as really um, progressive here in Seattle, but it's a progression or is it just passive like aggression? I'm not sure if it's progression or not. There are terms that black women specifically have to put up with cinnamon, chocolate, hot chocolate. Oh, God. Sade? Yeah. I think this goes under the, like, exotification, the fetishization of, like, black women that happens. Honestly, unless you're referring to, like, I don't know, Hershey's or, like, Nesquik, don't call me chocolate. Don't say anything about chocolate in my presence. It, like, literally reduces black women to a stereotype based on your preconceived notions it's just weird it's odd and just the word exotic as well just we just need to throw it out i feel like unless you're a woodland park zoo exhibit just don't even say exotic it's not a thing that should still be said it's like oh wow she has brown skin and my skin's white like oh mysterious like what's the mystery some people have melon and some people don't that's just the bottom line right it's just it's not a compliment. I'm not your chocolate princess, um, Godiva, Ferrero Rocher queen. I'm just a black woman. And that's it. Dr. Joseph? Yeah, I think the funny thing about these terms is that the person who's using them thinks of them as a compliment often. Unfortunately. And they think of it, it's a compliment, it's a pickup line, it's something that's going to then ingratiate them to you. Oh, and as Sade beautifully put it, it just isn't. No, those are those are terms. It's embarrassing. That to be. Is what it it is. is, and it's embarrassing for you. It's not embarrassing for me. It's <laughs> it embarrassing because it left your mouth. Yeah, and I actually got caught called chocolate last Friday, actually, and I, I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know if I should just turn around and go back home. It was unbelievable. So yeah, this is a th- real thing that happens all the time. So was that like a cat call? Or it was. was. It, I was yeah. walking down Forty Fifth actually. And then this man got so angry that I didn't like turn around and talk to him that he threw something at me. Wow. Yeah. So just some casual misogyny. Just mm-hmm. throw it in the mix. It's, With a little racism sprinkled you in. You know, just a little bit. So there we are. Shade Britt is a recent University of Washington graduate. Berlina Joseph is an associate professor of communication at the UW and director of the Center for Communication, Difference, and Equity. They spoke with Patricia Murphy, who's part of KUW's race and equity team. Uh, I don't want us to lose sight that Things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact. They're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Joseph Shepard said that at the end of his speech, he mentioned that he was not happy about the incoming president, but would support her. And he said after that, the new president's mother said that his words had been an attack on her daughter. The conversation became more tense. And uh, our voices did raise a bit, both of ours. Shepard says that as the woman walked away, she called him the N-word. Nigga! 
He says that then the woman's husband charged after him. Her family has denied that the incident took place at all. And WSU's Lou Heldman says that if it was hate speech, it will not be tolerated. It's something, whether it was from a member of the university community or a visitor, we will deal with that in whatever ways that uh, we have the authority to deal with it. The incident is under investigation. For KMUW News, I'm Eileen LeBlanc. So how's the college responding to this incident? We're having a, um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum on race so we can discuss the incident and the surrounding issues of race. So the usual lip service. Uh, no comment. Colleges around the country are seeing an unprecedented increase in white supremacist activity. Alt-right groups are aggressively trying to recruit students, and schools and students are struggling with how to handle it all. NPR's Tovia Smith has our report. Posters on buildings and bulletin boards at the University of Texas at Arlington implored students to, quote, report illegal aliens. America is a white nation. At the University of Pennsylvania, flyers were headlined, Imagine a Muslim-Free America. Hate watch groups have tracked 150 incidents of white supremacist propaganda on campuses this year. Before that, it was such a rarity, no one was even counting. Our time has come. White supremacist leaders are also coming to speak to students, as Richard Spencer did at Auburn University. There is nothing that can stop an idea whose time has come, and that time is now! This is a new phenomenon that's very dangerous. Oren Siegel, head of the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism, says white supremacists making a push for the mainstream often try to lure students with more opaque slogans like serve your people and our destiny is ours. They don't necessarily like shave their heads and wear swastika armbands. And what they're hoping is that people will maybe be interested because it's not so in your face. Indeed, one of those groups, Identity Europa, describes itself as a fraternity, albeit only for people of, quote, European non-Semitic descent. Next semester, we're going to be setting up tables, handing out thumb drives with videos. We're going to have booklets and stickers and so on. Founder Nathan D'Amigo, a 30-year-old student and Iraq War vet, got into white nationalism while serving a five-year prison sentence for armed robbery. He wants whites in the U.S. to have white-only space, as he put it, where we can be ourselves. He says the kind of forced diversity he grew up with is unnatural. You know, you go over to uh, your friend's house and, and all of their whole family is Latino or something like that. They're all speaking Spanish. You can't understand a single thing that's going on. So it's really awkward. It's just the reality. D'Amigo dismisses those who call him a racist, saying it's a, quote, cheap strategy to undermine him. But he concedes the controversy has been good for him. Sure, publicity is great. We found last year that all you had to do was put up some flyers and you'd get mass coverage, millions of dollars of coverage. So this is amazing. His flyers have been posted at campuses from the University of California, Berkeley, to the University of Massachusetts, Boston. I looked at these images and I was incensed because... It was really an attack on our students. UMass professor Joseph Brown says the heavily minority campus was clearly not chosen because it was a good place for white supremacists to find sympathetic recruits. They were trying to be provocative. In Internet terms, they troll. They're trying to make themselves seem a lot bigger than they are. 
It's all left schools and students trying to walk an almost impossibly fine line. All right, so who wants to facilitate today? At a UMass meeting of campus activists, students struggle with what is the right response to white supremacists. These fringe groups who put up a poster just want attention. So, I mean, really, you're giving them what they want. Student Catherine O'Donnell says getting sucked into a showdown with white supremacists also normalizes them and distracts from the fight against institutional racism. Responding to a poster is, in my opinion, very damaging rather than these greater issues that are causing problems every single day. But other students like Gabriela Cartagena are equally reluctant to let such hateful messages go unanswered. We have to let people know that this is not okay. We have to do something about this. We can't just pretend they don't exist and continue to push them under the frog. The same debate played out after white supremacist leaflets showed up at Purdue University. Administrators said they didn't want to, quote, take the bait from a fringe group and issued a general statement about university values. But students demanding a more explicit condemnation launched a sit-in. This is a hard hair to split. Especially, says UMass Chief Diversity Officer Georgiana Melendez, for a university trying to balance its responsibility to make all students feel safe and welcome with its commitment to open debate and free speech, including from white supremacists. We didn't take a position on their message except for to say that we understand that it's harmful to some members of our community and we can't just let that go. Like many schools, Melendez says UMass now has a kind of hate incident SWAT team ready to counter hateful messages and comfort hurt students. We have a, an email tree and we send out an email saying, hey, you know, this is happening again. Let's make sure we have our little kit together, make sure the counseling office knows we may need them. For now, hate watch groups say white supremacist efforts on campuses don't seem to be paying off, despite their claims to the contrary. But experts concede it's not an easy thing to track. And white supremacist gains, they say, need to be measured not only by membership, but also by how much their message may be creeping further into the mainstream. Tovia Smith, NPR News, Boston. The public school. We call it the killing field. An Ohio teacher has lost her job after another educator at the school acted as a little bit of a whistleblower and outed her after she dragged a student down the hall by his arm. So uh, this is Alta Head Start. It is a preschool, and the student that she's dragging is a preschooler. Um, black preschooler uh, to be exact. And so another educator saw this and decided to take a photo of it and share it with the administrators. And of course, local media, WKBN, reported on it. The mother of the child, of course, is outraged. Stevelyn um, Harshman is planning on suing as a result of this. And it's crazy because this, this school has a CEO. It's a preschool, so I'm guessing this is the type of thing that you would probably have to pay for. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, yeah. Yeah, this is insane. I mean, I don't know what else to say about it other than you can't be dragging students like that across a hallway holding their arms. Yeah, look, as a parent, of course, it freaks you out. Um, is this possible or wherever you know, you're sending your kids? This happens to be in Ohio at Youngstown City Schools. Uh, Sandoval, you know, you can't help but wonder. Uh, how often it happens? <laughs> a, how often it happens. B, and did she devalue him because he was a black kid and so not that big a deal? We don't know. We don't know what's in her head or heart. In this case, it doesn't really matter because can't be doing that to any kid anyway. So she should be fired and has been fired. So yeah. 
It was the appropriate react. It was the appropriate reaction to this photo, and also, you know, I give a lot of credit to the other educator on campus who decided to take that picture and say something about it. Yeah, and my guess is in a situation like that, that you take a picture like that and complain if you've had previous issues. Exactly. Right. Like if everything's great and you guys are all friends and everybody treats the kids decently, and then all of a sudden one person get in a day on a bad day does something they really really shouldn't have done they probably don't get thrown under a bus right like it probably happens in a situation where like that's it i've had enough of this how many times is she going to do that right and 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 that's probably what happened here we don't know all the details so um but you know it's interesting i there's they're suing right mm-hmm. i don't blame them um it's just not in my nature like i like don't get me wrong i mean if i'm Wronged enough, I'm sure I would sue, right? But and there's nothing wrong with suing yeah. if if you know if you're in a situation like this. It just wouldn't have occurred to me. I'd be like, yeah, I don't know, okay. So like, I'd be like, oh, I'm so pissed. Oh, you fired her. Good, great. Look, I don't know what I would do in this situation, um, but for the mother, do you boo? Right? Do what you feel is right. If you feel like you need to take legal action, I understand it. Um, I would be so enraged. That's the only thing I know for sure. And mm-hmm. so if the only retaliation that I could get is through the legal system, then I'm gonna go through the legal system, right? Because mm-hmm. well, I, I don't wanna get I don't want to get in trouble. You know, like I don't want to retaliate in other ways and then get in trouble. You don't want to do that. So <laughs> the old school uh, rolling thing, what is it that, that you're Oh mom, the rolling pin? The rolling yeah. pin that My your mom, mom chased pin. somebody with. <laughs> yeah, she had a rolling pin in her car at all times. I don't know why. <laughs> and when she saw a, another male student slap my butt uh, in third grade or fourth grade, I believe she got out of the car and she went after him with the rolling pin. <laughs> Never slapped my butt again. Old rolling pin justice. No, let's keep it legal. Let's keep it yes. legal. That's old school stuff, right? Um, anyway, uh, so it is what it is. Yeah. I just, you know, yeah. Do you boo? Release the beast. The beast in Florida: a history of anti-black violence. Um, Before I get to the overall purpose of what you were trying to do with the book, I wanted to focus on two words. The first one, beast. Uh, Why did you use the term beast in the title? Because I wanted to connote to people that this this thing had a presence. To me, the beast was uh, the embodiment of white racial hatred and violence. That's, that's, That's what the beast was. That was what was allowed to prowl Florida virtually uh, unchallenged for, for almost a century. Each year, millions of children flock to Orange County, Florida to visit Disney World. But in the background of this storybook community is a darker story. It has the highest number of juvenile arrests in the state. From June 2015 to June 2016, police arrested more young people living in Orange County than even more populated areas in Florida, like Miami-Dade County, where the population is nearly double. Nearly 64% of those incarcerated are African-American boys. WMFE's Renata Sago has completed a five-part series called Young and Arrested, exploring how the state's approach to crime may have created a cycle of rearrest and recidivism, keeping kids from finding any life outside of the criminal justice system. When a juvenile offender is arrested, it's becoming a bit more complex because they're being arrested for more severe crimes. I'm talking armed robberies, car burglaries. So the issue here is they're being penalized for more severe crimes and the approaches to them are a bit more severe. 
Now, these offenses mean they end up in adult court, and that's the experience of Marquise McKenzie, whose story really helps us to understand what's going on in uh, Orange County. Tell us about Marquise. Well, the interesting thing about Marquise is that, yes, at 16, he was sent directly to prison. That's called a direct file. But in this instance, there was a prosecutor who looked at his case. He was a first-time offender, and they said, hey, he needs to be sent to adult court. In Florida, prosecutors have what's called prosecutorial discretion. So there's a chance that you might get a young man, a young woman who commits the same offense and they are not sent to adult court where chances are they will get a more severe penalty for what they've done. You know, eventually he went through the system. He got out early, good behavior, ended up briefly doing a stint at a community college and uh, started his own company and was doing pretty well but pretty much dealt with a series of smaller traffic offenses. And most recently, he was actually arrested for a couple of charges, resisting arrest, and also his car was parked illegally outside of a club. For myself, I had a few run-ins, and I kind of feel like some of it was kind of my fault, but some police just don't believe that you're out here doing the right thing. So what this shows is he's being observed because of his prison record on some level, But there's also a psychological component here, and that's really what you discovered. That's right. It's so deep here. I mean, you have whole generations that had some sort of run-in with the law. And I actually spoke with someone who's a former public defender. Right now he's a dean at Florida A&M University. His name is Leroy Purnell. He talks about the complexity of being labeled as a problem as a child, what that does, how that sort of ingrains in your mind that you might end up continuing to be a problem. If you're told you're a problem long enough and you start to believe that you're a problem long enough, you're going to need some some serious psychological help to get past that. We don't really plan for that anymore. Systems don't seem to know how to deal with that. What's striking is that your story of Jalen Cobb really makes the case that this label is as tangible in the lives of a young black man as the bars in prison themselves, right? That's right. Jalen Cobb, I spoke with him. He's 20 years old right now. He was actually sent to residential confinement at 14 years old for an armed robbery. And his family situation was extremely complex. My father's a drug dealer. My uncle's a drug dealers. My grandma used to sell drugs. My mama, she talked to nothing but drug dealers. That's all I really knew for, for a point in my life. You know what I'm saying? If I hang around a thief, sooner or later, I'm going to pick up some tendencies. Jalen Cobb's eventual situation, though, improves. And it's a happy ending for him. But I'm wondering, tell us where he is today and what that suggests about how policymakers might change in Orange County to really deal with this recidivism rate. Well, last time I spoke with Jalen, he was a supervisor at McDonald's. He actually recently just got a job as a supervisor at a Gap store. Um, He talks a lot about his long-term goals. He wants to start a family. Uh, He wants to have kids. He wants to have a business. And a reason that he was able to 
fight a lot of his charges and not be sent to prison, he attributes to having support from a woman who's over a juvenile defense clinic at a local university here. But the reality that I hear often from folks who are in the system, I'm talking judges, um, I'm talking prosecutors, is the legislature, the fact that there is a disconnect often between lawmakers and the communities from which a lot of these kids emerge, a disconnect between the sort of complex family situations that they have and what happens when they come back home. Um, I actually do have a clip from Catherine Pozzoni, who talks about what she's experienced in eight years, eight plus years as the head of the juvenile defense clinic at Barry Law University. The kids who are breaking into houses and stealing cars, they're not just bad kids. It's a lot more complicated than that. And the more I learn about it, the more I think, you know, we're kind of putting the judgments of middle-class white people on kids who are living in a society that most of us can't even imagine. What was it like, Renata, for you to, in this five-part series, just see this churning processing of people who, you know, unlike Jalen, never ended up with a face-to-face relationship with someone who could help pull them out of this cycle. What was that like? It was completely disenchanting. I mean, because you think about kids who essentially represent a blank slate, right? You know, you have so many systemic resources in place, ideally, right? You have the school system, ideally church institutions, some sort of family institutions. So this is a public health issue. This is a social service issue. This is a law enforcement issue. And it's about seeking collaboration between all of the pieces to the puzzle. Renata Sego's five-part series on this subject is called Young and Arrested. Uh, she's a reporter at WMFE. Renata, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. A Ferguson protester allegedly committed suicide in the back of a vehicle while two females were in the car with him. This is Edward Crawford, and he was actually uh, the subject of an iconic photo during the Ferguson protest. This is a photo of him uh, throwing a tear gas canister. And he had claimed later that the reason why he threw it was because cops had thrown it toward the protesters and he was trying to throw it away from them so no one would get hurt. The St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department told NBC News that Crawford shot himself in the back seat of a car while it was moving. That's according to two female witnesses who were seated in the front of the car. The victim began expressing he was distraught over personal matters to the witnesses. The witnesses heard the victim rummaging in the back seat, then heard a gunshot and observed the victim had sustained a gunshot wound to his head. Now, his father says, look, he was a happy guy. He had just secured a new job. He has four kids. Everything was going well. I don't believe it was a suicide. Now, he doesn't think that there was any foul play. He thinks that it was accidental, that he might have accidentally shot himself. Um, But what is interesting about this story is that it follows a very similar pattern involving the deaths of other individuals in the same area over the last couple of years. Okay, so this is the St. Louis area, 
And just to give you a few examples, in November of 2014, 20-year-old DeAndre Joshua was found shot in the head with severe burns after being lit on fire. Joshua was discovered dead in his own car. Also in September of 2016, the body of Ferguson activist Darren Seals was discovered inside a burning car. Seals had been shot and police declared the death a homicide. Elite Daily also listed a total of seven deaths in the St. Louis area that happened in a similar way. It was in cars. In the vast majority of cases, the cars had been or the bodies had been burned or the car had been set on fire. And look, it, it seems suspicious, but we don't have any type of evidence indicating that there's, you know, one person or a group of people doing this to a specific demographic. We just know that there's a lot of similarities, there seems to be a pattern, and it's suspicious. Yeah, I have no idea what's going on. I don't have a, I don't even have a theory, but yeah. I do know that it is a weird mystery. Because look, three guys involved in the Ferguson protests wind up dying, they're all young. That's already weird, but maybe, it's not, not, it's not that big a community. If it's Chicago, you say, okay, I mean, three people in a big city, they're gonna totally happen, right? Okay, but two of them get shot and burned in their car. God, that is so specific. That's two years apart, by the way. One of them on the night that they said that the officer was, you know, the night the officer was acquitted and not, and and found not guilty of shooting Mike Brown. So it's just, I don't know anything more than it is super weird. Now the third person dies. And I wanna say one more thing about the picture, the iconic picture. It won, this picture was so iconic, it won a Pulitzer Prize. And, and he's got, it's so, this is, like sometimes as Ben says, pictures lie. And this both, is it worth a thousand words and lies at the same time? So a lot of right-wingers use this picture like, oh, you see that? He's like throwing like a Molotov cocktail at the mm -hmm. cops. In reality, no, that was a tear, gan, a tear gas canister that the cops had fired at the protesters. And he didn't want to have the kids around there get harmed. So he actually put himself in peril to grab the burning canister and throw it away from the kids. Right. The cops were actually were really far away. He said, I couldn't throw a baseball that far, let alone a burning gas canister, mm -hmm. right? So, and, and the local people there, including state senators, call him a hero for throwing that gas canister away from from the from the people who were protesting in the in the area, including kids, and he's wearing an American flag mm -hmm. T-shirt. I mean, it is it it does tell you the story of misunderstandings in America. Yeah, where some people look at the picture and see a dangerous guy who's attacking the cops, mm -hmm. but if you actually find out the real story, it's actually a guy who was protecting the community. Right, and and it was right or wrong the cops who fired that tear gas canister in the first place right next to them. Right, look, it's a great photo and you don't see a whole picture when you look at that picture. You don't see where the cops are, you don't see how far away the cops are. And so people can look at that and they can have varying perspectives based on what their internal biases are. And and that's a perfect example, this picture is a perfect example of that. How depending on your ideology, you'll look at a picture and you'll interpret it completely different from others. Yeah, but either way, Unfortunately, Edward Crawford now deceased, third protester in that area, killed in the last three years in under strange circumstances. So, but we don't yet know the whole story. Black police showing out for the white cop. For the black and too black for the blue. Shocking new allegations tonight out of the city of Warren, where a police officer says her brothers in blue refused to back her up on crime scenes 
because of the color of her skin. Officer Sheila Howlett has filed a lawsuit alleging multiple racial problems at the police department in a city where the mayor has been under fire for months. We're talking about Jim Fouts, of course, accused of insensitive racial remarks. Defender Kevin Deitch joins us with an exclusive interview with Officer Howlett. Growing up, Sheila Howlett was a good student and a good athlete who always wanted to be a police officer. First working for the city of Detroit, then Oak Park before accepting an offer to be the first African-American police officer ever hired in the city of Warren. I took on the challenge, and to be honest, I, I assumed that in time, if I had good work ethic and just being a decent overall person, that they would get to know me for me. She never imagined that in the following 10 years, no other African-Americans would be hired. Warren is the third largest city in Michigan with 134,000 residents and more than 250 police officers. 13.5% of residents are African American, but DeSheila Howlett is the only black police officer. She says from the start it wasn't easy, and instead of improving, it got worse. From racially insensitive remarks about African American names. Why do you guys name your children ghetto names and then the example will be given. Uh, you know, D-E-E-S-T-I-N-E-E. -E -E. To racial remarks about food at lunch. Hey, Holly, what you got today? Chicken and ribs? To racially charged stereotypes. I was compared to the gorilla, you know. And people just don't understand the history of a black person and why that's so demeaning. Officer Howlett persevered until she realized her life might be in danger. She was warned by a dispatcher that other officers were slow to give her backup on crime scenes. So the Calvary's coming for everyone else as fast as possible. And so it's like the grace of God that when I was out there, you know, that I haven't, hadn't been hurt. The final straw, a coworker using the N-word in front of her when an African-American resident was upset in the lobby. Nigga! She started screaming that N-word, that N-word. She was like, he would have killed me if the bulletproof glass wasn't there. Then that coworker realized DeSheila was in the room. So after I looked back at her, she was like, but not you. Officer Howlett says it hurts physically, mentally, emotionally. I started to sweat. My heart started beating really fast because it was just so overwhelming. Leonard Mungo is Howlett's attorney. He says the city of Warren has a history of racial insensitivity and a current mayor who's under fire for alleged racially insensitive comments. It's a poisonous, uh, racially poisonous environment, and it must change. It has to change. Mayor Jim Fouts tells me he knows Officer Howlett to be a nice person and a model police officer. Then he declined to comment on an active lawsuit. Warren's police commissioner declined comment, too. DeSheila Howlett says she just wants to answer her calling to be a police officer, to help make the community safer while working in a department that doesn't see black or white, only blue. To make myself so small for them is, is a horrible thing to admit and say that I've allowed myself to be tolerated. Officer Howlett says she had hoped that she would be able to break down racial barriers in the city of Warren and open doors for others. Now, she says, her lawsuit will force the city to hire more minorities and to be more accepting of everyone. Kevin Dietz, Defenders. Well, you can tell she's very clearly right on the brink of uh, oh, breaking down in, in the motion over right. it. Yeah. So, yeah. Workplace racism is every Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. 
context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, May 13th, 2017. So I have been told, actually, uh, if my math is correct, uh, this is 32 years to the day that the move house was bombed in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, I believe five children were killed. Five black children were killed uh, and 11 people total, uh, including uh, more than 50 black owned houses burned to the ground. Uh, That was 32 years to the day. Uh, We have discussed that incident uh, in detail repeatedly, as has Mumia Abu-Jamal. Compensatory call-in. If folks have commentary, things they would like to share, feel free. Dial in the number 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, Please do not wait until the last minute if you think you have commentary you would like to share. Uh, With that, some of the things that I wanted to uh, discuss before we get to folks who dialed in. We are listener-supported, counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism-notes.blogspot.com Racism-notes.blogspot.com When you hit the blog, the PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you're not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. A huge thanks to all the folks who have invested eight plus years. I hope the program has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy uh, and helping listeners get an accurate understanding uh, of what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, what it means to be white. That said, uh, number one, uh, I would like some assistance. Uh, I have a article I'm supposed to write for Atlanta Black Star. Uh, it is about the danger of worshiping uh, or giving a lot of undue praise to whites who are reported or alleged to have worked against racism at some point. Uh, I'm going to make sure that I include admitted racist Jane Elliott uh, when she said that uh, it is not courageous uh, for a white person like her uh, to do this work, uh, that she's still not treated like black people, uh, and she still makes a good bit of coin uh, to do her speechifying. Uh, I also wanted to include, and this is from uh, 2010 uh, when she shared this on the program. If you, you know, I know we got newer listeners. Uh, Zach Casey also I thought was a pretty good one Uh, admitted racist I met him at the infamous white privilege conference in La Crosse Wisconsin 2010 
Uh, he was a guest on the program, I believe, in April, uh, like a week or two after I got back from the conference. And he talked about the same thing, uh, about, in fact, how non-white people victims of racism that we are conditioned to seek out these good white people because we do not want to accept the truth that yes every single white person is racist even these white people who you know bake us cookies and you know help you maybe get a mortgage or we even had some white people who helped black people get uh buy a house when they wouldn't sell to niggers and that sort of thing whatever even uh, sue africa we mentioned move right sue africa her her offspring one of the fatalities one of the victims at the move bombing even sue <laughs> it's hard for me to say her name without snickering sue africa from last year one of the infamous broadcasts in Cal's history, Sue Africa, the, the legend. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm writing on. I was going to include Dr. Kanban's uh, statement about uh, these white people that allegedly are working against white supremacy, how they are not, uh, they are what he called, they are statistically insignificant. Uh, but they said due to his uh, inflammatory commentary from previously that I cannot cite Dr. Kanban. But uh, there are a number of others. In fact, they told me that Dr. John Henry Clark uh, made a similar comment. They just said uh, they could not remember either the specific lecture uh, and or book or written paper where he said this. So if any listeners, if you know uh, of where John Henry Clark said this or have an idea, if you can point me in the correct direction, I would really appreciate it. Or if there are other sources, if you can think of other cows, guests who've talked about this topic that you think, hey, you should quote that person or reference that person or any anything that you've read or just an idea. You say, hey, you know, I can't I, no one has said this, but just just my thought that you should include. Feel free. Uh, again, the topic, the danger of celebrating, praising whites who allegedly have done something to work against racism. Uh, feel free to share any thoughts. Uh, the other thing I wanted to make sure that I got in, uh, that segment from the Young Turks, uh, I guess there were two, so I need to be specific. The segment where they were talking about the uh, suspected race soldier, white female teacher. I just wrote about this this week for Atlanta Black Star. But uh, this teacher that drugged the black child down the hallway, four-year-old black child down the hallway, when they got to the end, and that white female uh, co-host on the Young Turks, when she said, uh, do you, boo, I didn't even, it took me a moment to even like process that that's what she was saying because it sounded so fake. We just talked about white people on the job, workplace racism, every Thursday. We just talked about this when white people, when they come and there are black people around and they start using uh, like stereotypical uh, black slang, black vernacular. This is how they think the niggers are talking like in this day and time. Uh, she wasn't talking to a, a black person, uh, but that she was talking about a black parent because she was talking about the family of this black child, presumably black people going to sue. So it is kind of the same thing. The black people just were not there, but she was talking about this black family, giving her support. And it's do you boo that irritated me more than anything else. Like that is high on my list of when I say like the young Turks, when people, I used to be confused, like, Oh yeah, they're great. These are, Good white people, John Brown of the 21st century and Jane Brown. 
Uh, and the more you understand what it means to be white, the tackiness is so obvious. Uh, I will say no more. The last thing I wanted to get in, uh, Desmond Cole, who I have tremendous uh, respect for uh, as a writer, uh, his uh, radio broadcasting as well. Uh, I try to include a number of his uh, segments have been for uh, quite a while now. Uh, I have referenced some of his uh, writing in my own uh, writing. Uh, that segment, near and dear to my heart for many reasons, <laughs> I too uh, know the difficulty of writing. I say that every time when I post anything that I've written, it is astronomically challenging. If you are a black person and you're trying to write like and be paid uh, what they call writing professionally, and you're trying to talk directly, explicitly about racism, white supremacy, oh, wow, <laughs> it is extra difficult. Uh, and I have had some of those exact same conversations, write about something else, diversify your topics, maybe let's not talk about white supremacy. Exa man, anyway, uh, when he got to the portion where he talked about uh, he wanted to VGQ, obviously for everyone. But when he got to the portion where he said basically that uh, this was his effort to make it easier for other black journalists who are coming behind him. And particularly, he said he knows that the the next generation of young black journalists, at least in candidates, uh, disproportionately black females. That's what it seems like. And he wants to make sure that he's doing his part. He's taking his what he called privilege uh, to step down uh, so that the path will be a little bit easier for him. Black self-respect, right on. That is, you know, very commendable. Appreciate him making it that explicit. I did, that was a moment, though, where I recall the dialogue about what they say is black male privilege. He didn't say black male privilege. He just said his quote-unquote privilege. So maybe he meant his black male privilege. Maybe he was talking about something else. I don't know. But that was a moment listening to him where I did think, so does Desmond Cole have black male privilege? And even if I'm hearing that the next generation of black journalists, at least in Canada, because that's where he is, uh, is disproportionately black female. Again, I'm just left curiously about this whole concept of black male privilege, uh, because I've heard that those same type of statistics, you start talking about, you know, college, universities, degrees, that it starts to be disproportionately black female, all of that by racist design. It just, again, I, I am not sure how to process this concept of black male privilege. Came to mind while listening to Mr. Cole. We'll stop there. The number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. If you could take about five minutes, share whatever comments you have. Uh, that way, everybody gets an opportunity to speak. If you have additional commentary, just make sure everybody gets one chance to share. And then if you have additional uh, questions or just things that you want to say, we should have time. Also, if you know you're in a noisy environment, if, if you know people are around you talking or the television is on, if you could use your mute button, that would be great. That way you can speak, share whatever commentary you have, and then mute. That just helps minimize the distortion uh, in the quality of the broadcast. Uh, with that, 
if we could not use metaphors, I would really appreciate it. Uh, again, racists, they frequently will use comparisons, analogies, where they equate two things that are not similar. A lot of times victims, we're still learning. We haven't come to conclusions uh, about certain things. So sometimes we will employ a metaphor and hope that that accurately conveys our thoughts often. They do not. They just spread a lot of confusion. So on this broadcast specifically, if we can make an effort to just be direct, exact, clear about what it is we are trying to say, I would greatly appreciate it. I'll prompt about that as well. Uh, the first few people who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Feel free. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Josh. Um, yes, I thought the same thing. And I actually um, wrote this down. Um, I said, because um, you played the clip on the white students, and I said, um, white students are playing victim because they're being targeted by white supremacist groups and our white victimization. And um, when you said the piece about the, um, the MOVE um, organization, I said, and speaking of white victimization, I bet Sue Europe gets a huge dose on this day. Um, where she gets to play the, the ultimate victim. And um, I think that's the ultimate thing. And uh, that, I think that also is something you can lead into with your story because um, the white people who help black people, I think they do it uh, once for deception. Another way, another reason is so that they can, uh, they usually go about writing books or um, doing something um, where they're, they're usually the victim. Rebecca Scoot, you know, sort of type stories where they're the victim within the story. Um, the part you, the first story you played about the meat, and um, that's still today. Um, um, now they put, um, give you an option. Um, they'll have major supermarkets with very good meat, but it's expensive. And then all the local smaller supermarkets will have bad meat. Um, I've experienced it. And I was told that they pour pink um, dye inside of the meat to make it look fresher. Um, but um, definitely something that still happens. And um, from that story, man, um, I wish we still had the Black Panthers around. I think that was great, even doing dental work, um, just superior black self-respect. Um, they passed the Sandra Bland bill in Texas, um, but they changed it from the original bill. The original bill would have had um, been changing the policing on the uh, in Texas by requiring higher burden of proof for stopping and searching vehicles, um, counseling and training for officers who racially profile drivers, I guess um, some type of scrutiny if they get caught doing it, and it also would have banned arrests um, uh, over offenses that are not punishable fines, like um, switching the lane or no, not putting a signal on. You know, it's not a punishable crime by arrest, so you can't arrest that person. However, they took all that out of the bill and only left uh, provisions to mandate mental health training for jailers, which is only eight hours, uh, heightened supervision of inmates, which are going to be cameras, and um, improved the mental care access and drug treatment, which um, will give the police um, some type of knowledge of the medicines that you might be taking uh, when, you, when they arrest you, so that way they can um, still give you those medicines. Um, but I don't see how this had any, how any of that would have saved this lady's life at all. Um, the, the things that they took out of the bill would have been the things that would have saved her life. Um, all of this, um, watching people with mental illness, I mean, it, 
that I don't see how any of that would have changed anything. Um, and if it's time, I just had this um, one more story. They put on New York One here in New York. Um, the marijuana possession statistics for 2016: 28,000 weed possession tickets with some uh, or summonses were issued, an additional 18,000 arrests. Uh, this was the this was to me almost unbelievable, even under a system of racism and white supremacy. 92%, 92% of all the possession infractions were people who were non-white, mostly black, is how they put it. Um, New York, with um, 2,300,000 black residents, uh, which only three states have more, Georgia, Florida, and California, have more people than New York City. And um, almost 4 million whites live here, and you have that type of discrepancy, and drugs are used equally amongst both races. I find that to be quite um, compelling. And I'm with my line. I had another thing I'll add later. Thank you. Appreciate that, uh, Thomas in New York. Uh, other people who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Feel free. Love it when the folks dial in uh, on the compensatory call and this one and or workplace racism and uh, spectate uh, again. This is not a spectator broadcast. Uh, if you have commentary, particularly for the people that have a hand up, uh, feel free. Share your thoughts. I guess folks are spectating today. Not sure uh, what the deal is. Uh, I did want to share one of the listeners uh, who wrote in. This was during the live program. She wrote me on Facebook. She said that someone uh, posted a video. Uh, I saw the video. I didn't watch it with sound on because the program had already uh, started. This was like within the last 40 minutes or so. Uh, But it showed a racist white man. And he had like his Confederate flag and other, you know, flagrant racist paraphernalia. And he carried out some sort of uh, lynching of what appears to be a black female. This is like a Facebook live stream uh, video. That's what it looks. That's what the person uh, who sent it to me said. Cal's listener. She said that someone just forwarded to her. She said she when she tried to click on it, uh, that it had been removed. I guess you're not supposed to put this sort of content up. She said it looks like it could have been staged. Uh, I think she was able to record the video or capture the video. Uh, So I guess I could share. But uh, I might just seeing it briefly while the broadcast was on i did not do any in-depth analysis i uh, just i did want to mention it i suspect that this could uh be the sort of stage thing because i've seen this before where whites uh they have their pranks of this nature uh where they have their uh black friend and they'll dress up in like clan outfits or something like that and put a noose around their neck i've seen these type of things before uh, i certainly hope that this is not some sort of real uh, killing that took place, but I've seen whites to do this sort of uh, just trashy uh, racist prank uh, before, uh, and I even think that there could be an element of just doing this to get uh, black people riled up, to get black people upset, angry, stressed, uh, the whole nine. That's one of the big things that racists do, try to get black people to be uh, irate. Uh, if other people, if they just you know want to uh, to see or who posted this, that sort of thing, uh, I can share, but that did that did happen since we were on the air. Those are my thoughts about it. Proceeding. 
Uh, are the folks that are with us and have a hand up, uh, are they still just hanging out spectating, or did you have commentary you want to share now? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just had a quick um, thing to share. On, I think it was yesterday, Friday. Um, this, I'm sorry, this is the black female caller from Ohio. There was a shooting at, I didn't get to listen to any of the clips, so that's why I'm sharing this, but um, there was a shooting at a nursing home here, but it was actually in a city like, um, it says the city was about 25 miles or so outside of Columbus, and um, of course, like many of the black people, I've stayed in like one of the major cities. And I know, like, whenever I drive between major between the major cities, Cincinnati, Columbus, um, Cleveland, there's lots of different, like, racist paraphernalia um, at the farmhouses and stuff like that. So when they first started talking about the shooting on the news, um, I was definitely paying attention to how they framed it. Um, just also how um, the news was so quick to say that the Muslim student who, um, who like, uh, drove over some people and were stabbing people on the Ohio State campus not that long ago, how they were basically saying how this could be a possible terrorist attack, this and the other. So ever since then, um, whenever there's, I guess, they have breaking news, I always try to see how they're um, describing the suspect or lack thereof and that basically tells me if it's a non-white person or a white person. Because in this uh, nursing home shooting, uh, a cop died or a law, in, uh, a law enforcement official died. And a couple other people were shot. And then I just found out that the suspect was also shot, I'm assuming, by the police. I'm not quite sure, though. But when they were first describing the incident... They never once used the word terrorist. They never once used um, just those those trigger words that they typically use and that they also used on the Muslim um, student who, like I said, was driving over people and stabbed someone, and he actually was shot by the police. And they, uh, you know, that police officer, they made sure to say how much of a hero he was, of, of course. So... Um, that that was just one of the things that I, I I noticed. I knew since it was a city outside of the major cities, um, it was likely not a a black person or likely not even a non-white person, just because of the makeup of how Ohio is. And um, I guess that's all I wanted to share for now. Thank you. Appreciate that. Good habit to get in if you uh, pay attention to the news have to pay attention to the news, I guess, first and foremost. But that is a great habit to get in, just noticing those types of uh, patterns and how they report on events and just the clues. Uh, You can tell from the words that are used, words that are not used uh, to predict uh, the racial classification uh, of the people being discussed. A lot of people, I think, try to sharpen their counter-racist skills in doing that. Uh, Other folks uh, who dialed in who have a hand up that we have not heard from, uh, do you have commentary? Yes. Hey, how you doing? Right poorly. All right. Um, I, I guess I'm going to get uh, maybe the callers can respond to this and get their opinion on this. 
Um, I don't know if it was last week, but during the week, uh, I think her name is Betty DeVoe. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, she's a secretary of education under Donald Trump. And she visited uh, HBCU. And the the students there booed her and turned their backs on her. Um, I'm conflicted because um, right now, uh, HBCUs are, are, you know, um, in, in dire need of funding. So um, I was thinking to myself, I said, okay, I mean, we already came to the agreement that um, that uh, the Donald Trump administration, um, you know, is, is over, overtly racist. Um, and I guess we also came, some of, most of us, some of us came to the conclusion that they're not going to do nothing for black people. But however, I feel like um, we're really not in a position to uh, boo um, Betty DeVos. I mean, she's the Secretary of Education. Um, she holds the purse strings. And in the past, I mean, you know, we've we've dealt with and negotiated with many other races um, and um, uh, presidents. And 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 administrations. So my thing is, I don't. I'm 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 thinking to myself, was that a wise move on behalf of the students to just basically just shut her down uh, when she visited the schools? Because I mean, regardless of how you feel, I mean, every day we negotiate with races, whether it's at our jobs. Um, you know, whether we're getting pulled over by a racist police officer, and in most cases there is no negotiation. So if we are under a system and also living in a country that's controlled by white supremacists, regardless if you like them or not, we, we still have to negotiate. You know, and I'm, I'm the saying is you negotiate with your enemies, you don't negotiate with your friends. I just wanted to uh, get some opinions on that. Hmm. Appreciate uh, appreciate that. Uh, yes, sir, Mr. Steele. Uh, I'll give my thought really quick as we uh, go down the line. I think, I guess, number one, that was a commencement, unless I've been misinformed. I do think that's important context uh, that uh, Betsy Devo, she was invited to give the commencement address at Bethune-Cookman. Um, and they, some of the students, presumably black students, uh, turned their head. Uh, I do think I heard a metaphor in there because uh, you said they shut her down, quote unquote. Uh, I don't know what that means exactly. Um, I don't, I didn't hear any reports that they, you know, snatched the mic uh, from her or threw her on the ground or anything like that. That would be news to me if all that, uh, happened. I just heard that they booed and turned away, uh, from her. Um, my view, uh, would be that at this moment, and also I guess additional context as well, there's been a lot specifically with Betsy DeVos and HBCUs, because you mentioned the funding where representatives, presidents from a variety of HBCUs went to the White House with the understanding that they were going to be talking about just that, getting funding for uh, historically black colleges, universities, and it got switched around. Seemed like they did the same thing that Coretta Scott King mentioned yesterday in her memoir, switched around, photo op, they didn't even, they weren't even addressing what the original agenda was supposed to be, and so 
some of the uh, HBCU leaders spoke out and said that, you know, we've been bamboozled. We've been hoodwinked. Uh, we didn't even talk about the funding issues that this was all supposed to be about. So I think all of that is additional uh, context specifically with her and all of this stuff happened recently. Why uh, HBCU members might be particularly upset uh, and frustrated that they tried to negotiate. They did all that and feel as though the whites of this uh, Trump administration have not acted in good faith. Uh, so I think that's important for context, too. I think if it's a commencement, if I'm graduating, I spent all this money, thousands of dollars. I might have, you know, ungodly stu uh, student loan debt for a number of years. And they picked a speaker that I don't like or however this person got selected to give this address. I have seen whites cut a fool uh, for the pet. I mean, for eons at colleges and universities where they invited a speaker and they didn't like the speaker and it prompted a riot and all kinds of things. So, I mean, if it's you invite a speaker, I don't like this speaker. I'm a paying student. I'm an alumnus. I'm graduating. It's supposed to be my day. And I got to listen to some race soldier that I don't like. And our maximum uh, showing of resistance is we boo and turn our head as a victim of racism. I have no problem with that at all. None. <laughs> my view. Mr. Steele, were you going to respond? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Awesome. I'm uh, in Yorba Linda, California at the moment. And uh, I believe that's the, the home of Richard Milhouse Nixon. I think that's where he's from. Um, I want to say that that uh, display at... Uh, um, the HBCU uh, commencement uh, with Betsy DeVos, um, I think that that was a display of black self-respect. And I think it's uh, unambiguously, uh, in my opinion, the correct um, behavior that more black people should be engaging in with respect to racist white supremacists. I think that um, there, needs to be a more, there needs to be more of a willingness on the part of victims to recognize that you're talking to a racist and they're practicing racism as they are um, talking to you. Um, you know, you can hear what they're saying with your back turned. And I think that that is a really good stance to take when a person like Betsy DeVos is making a display of that sort. I just, I, I couldn't think of anything better. Um, I think there may have been better if they were more unified in their chanting um, or if they could have gotten uh, a really slick expression. But, uh, you know, um, I thought that the video that the videos of the event that um, came about, they were very telling. And I think that the uh, victims who arranged this meeting um, will have to think twice. I believe uh, another racist suspect was supposed to perform, uh, was supposed to give the commencement at an HBCU this weekend, and it was canceled. So um, I think that uh, the behavior of the students at this particular school um, was constructive, and um, I think it's an example of black self-respect. Also, you know, I encourage victims. Um, you know, I, I ask victims uh, all the time, you know, do have you contradicted a suspected racist today? Uh, have you contradicted, have you questioned a white person today? You know, have you doubted anything that a white person told you today? And I think that these are questions that victims should ask themselves every day when you wake up, or rather every day when you're about to go to bed. Um, and then, you know, think, can I improve 
on the next day. And I think that if we get in the habit of questioning racists, I think that we will fall out of the habit of having some of the destructive emotional responses that we have been programmed to, uh, I guess, engender when we encounter these, uh, these monsters. I have, a, I have an associate uh, who recently asked me, um, how is it that you're able to stay so calm when you're dealing with racists? You know, because when he deals with uh, racists and uh, suspected racists, um, he is very quick to, um, very quick to anger, very quick to raise his voice, and uh, very quick to start explaining and making statements. And I instructed him that it's best when you remain in question mode, when you listen to what these people are saying and you think about the next three questions that you want to ask. And then finally, I want to say that um, there was a, a suspected um, victim of racism, or there was a victim of racism that I encountered uh, the other day. And um, this victim, uh, this victim uh, was, uh, was recovering from an attack that she had from um, her boyfriend, who was also a victim of racism. And uh, he, she was immediately talking about uh, getting revenge on this person. And I suggested to this victim, yes, uh, this person uh, did wrong you. However, um, you might want to think about five racists, five suspected white supremacists that have harmed you before you want to address this particular incident. Because I guarantee that those five people have done more harm to you uh, than this person in this particular incident. So I, I just want to encourage victims, if you are, you know, uh, in a situation where you want to take revenge on another victim, think about some uh, racist suspects to take out first. Five. Make a list of five. And then after you've done what needs to be done with them, then you can go ahead and get your revenge on the on the suspected racist, if it matters at that point. Uh, on the, the victim that harmed you, if it matters at that point. And I'll mute my line. If you can't think of five people that you want to take out vengeance on, you can email Gusty anytime until justice at gmail.com and I will help you come up with your five. Easy, easy, easy. We can get way more than five if you need help getting your list together of racists uh, that you want to, you know, do some vengeance. Uh, folks that we have not heard from at all. Uh, I think we had a question on the table about uh, Betsy Devos and her performance as well. Uh, but folks we haven't heard from at all have a hand up. Uh, if you have commentary you would like to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. <clears throat> Greetings, everyone. It's uh, ironic because I was thinking about uh, asking a similar question uh, to the uh, to everybody uh, about the uh, Bethune-Cookman University uh, incident because uh, um, I thought it was that interesting because I, I was slightly conflicted uh, on the surface of my understanding. I, I would call it uh, a high level of black self-respect out of those young people and what they're doing. The only thing that I would have done probably different is total, total silence with the cheers turned backwards 
And after she finished, no sound whatsoever uh, during that process. Uh, uh, Bethune-Cookman is a, is a private university, and it actually costs a lot of money to go there. Uh, I'm not saying that they don't need money, but I don't think they're like on the brink of crumbling or uh, anything like that. But uh, I thought it was uh, a level of, of uh, self-respect. Uh, first of all, I am not going to be happy uh, because you are paying uh, for whoever that person is is to come to speak at your commencement. In other words, it is your commencement, the, the young people who are, who are getting the, the degrees and whatnot. So they do play a part in that. I don't know how it ended up with Miss DeVos being there, but nevertheless, the reality, uh, uh, she was there. Uh, but uh, that's, how I, that's why I thought, thought about it. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm kind of like emotionally attached to Bethune-Cookman uh, university anyway, because I did an internship there back many, many years ago, uh, to get a master's, uh, and, uh, Mary McLeod Bethune is one of my mother's favorite people. Uh, moving on, uh, I have a question, uh, doing one of the excerpts, there was a person, uh, that had a problem, I believe with the term non-white and, uh, if uh, anybody or Gus, if you can uh, tell me what was the uh, what was the uh, uh, analysis of the problem, uh, I would like to uh, hear it because I use the term a lot. I use the term a lot because I think it's the most accurate term to describe uh, our. Uh, "Quote unquote racial classification," except for I also add on victim of white supremacy, non-white victim of racism, racism, white supremacy. But uh, if anybody can uh, tell me what was what was the person uh, concerned about, uh, I appreciate it. They were they were non-white uh, individuals. <laughs> I guess they would say, "Don't call me that." Maybe they would want to be identified as people of color. Both of them, uh, one of them from the photos that I saw, one of them uh, looked like a black female specifically. Uh, but they were saying that if you're using the term non-white uh, or non-black, that you are uh, nullification is within these labels. You are identifying me by telling people I am not white. Uh, that is the norm. That is the standard that you're making that the norm and you are defining me as being not what the norm is, not what the standard is, as opposed to identifying uh, what I am uh, and saying that that just it normalizes uh, the white classification uh, and it just defines me against that always. Uh, that's kind of the gist of, of their uh, analysis, mm -hmm. which some people have shared on the program previously. Jane Elliott being yes. one. Yes. Yes, I could be wrong, but it sounds close to me like a, uh, uh, emotional, uh, emotional thought more so than a, uh, just a, more so than a scientific one. It doesn't sound good type of thing. Uh, I could be wrong about it, but that, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking when I hear, because because I, I actually don't 
really don't comprehend and or hear anything that would say, well, by saying non-white, is that accurate? And I think it's accurate. I mean, <laughs> the whole thing about racism is, is incorrect in itself. So it's nothing to really look to, have, to be prideful about, you know, the whole thing, you know. With, as for instance, James Brown with the song in '68, "Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud." You know, I mean, I mean it's 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 uh it's uh, uh you know, like kind of like irrelevant, you know, <laughs> in, in, in a sense. What's there to be proud about? You know, that something that somebody made up to mistreat people. But anyway, just a thought. Uh, anybody else? I, I would. Uh, really like to hear their uh, thoughts on it if if uh, they care to. Thank you. Okay, may I be here? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Our other um, caller in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hello to uh, Gus, the host, and to all the you know callers and listeners, and just a couple of things. The interesting program tonight. Uh, to the gentleman that asked about the Batum-Cookman thing, I I wasn't conflicted about it at all when I first heard about it. And, um, I mean, I, I didn't go to Batum-Cookman, but, I mean, I was even upset. And I think the thing, because, you know, I did some research on Betsy DeVos. You know, this is a woman. She is a billionaire's daughter. She is a billionaire's wife. Uh, she is, I think her husband, I think she has something to do with Amway. But they're out of Michigan, and I know that, um, you know, she's just really a school choice advocate. And, um, you know, in, in turn, I mean, don't, you know, from the stuff that I've read, you know, not even much knowledge of HBCUs and the purpose of HBCUs. You know, she, I think the very first time she said something about HBCUs, she was saying, that, oh, they're pioneers of school choice. And it's just like, well, HBCUs came about because, you know, black people couldn't go to any of these, these white schools here. And the other thing about HBCUs is HBCUs never discriminated. Their doors were open to any and everybody that wanted to come. And then it was a something that her office put out. And instead of for it saying HBCUs, it said HCBUs, you know, U.S. And it's just like, you know, see, if you're going to do this thing, and I mean, this is something coming out of your office under your name, you know, let's get the stuff right, you know. So, you know, you know, so that right there. So I, I feel the students, it's just massive black self-respect. She has not been in that office probably maybe close to 100 days now. Because remember, President uh, Trump became the president because she was nominated. You know, she, she's barely been in the office. And we know, sad as it is, highly incompetent. You know, I mean, she just, you know, you know, she just doesn't have the background, you know, I mean, you know, for, you know, her, she doesn't have an education, education background. And so I, I agree with you, Gus, you know, and uh, it's a private school. It's my understanding, I read something today, I think, or uh, that they are affiliated with United Methodists. So like the retired firefighters said, um, in terms of finances, you know, they may be all right, you know. But um, I agree with you, like you said, you know, I paid all this money, today is my day or our day, and here yet you bring us the speaker here. And and, it, and I just even kind of felt like this is the president, you know, you're trying to get some money, and I don't care what nobody say, I don't think they're going to get any money. I mean, 
the president of the United States is looking in the Constitution, you know, when he put out something last week about um, the, uh, there may be something unconstitutional about, you know, funding HBCUs. So here's somebody that's almost literally trying to destroy HBCUs. And, and I mean, she's a part of his administration. So I, I have, I have great respect for those students. Um, it was yeah, just from something I saw on Facebook. It was loud and stuff. She did manage to give her speech. I went out because it's like I wanted to see it. I read the con, you know, the t- transcripts of her speech, and and she just really didn't say anything. And and you know, I was thinking, I'm just like, there are black people out there because you know, when when you graduate from college, you want somebody to give those students a charge to go out into the world and let's change the world. I'm just like, I don't see no white people standing before no black school telling black students to go out here and change the world because first thing, white people control the world. So I, I, I just don't see that. And I think it's just missed opportunities to have, uh, uh, you know, better speeches. The other situation I think was Texas Southern. Now that is where I got my master's from. So I was very happy to hear that those students got together and they they uh, stopped. It was supposed to be Senator John Cornyn. He's out of Texas. Racist white man or suspected racist. I mean, there's some things that I've heard that he says like, hmm. And they 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 stopped that. So he had to withdraw. You know. And I can't understand why these presidents are even inviting these people to come speak at their schools. In terms of what the retired firefighter was saying about. I just think it, it's just mass confusion. Like, like, you know, you say, oh, you're defining me by, almost like it's in the system negative, but in the sense you, you're biracial or whatever, but you still kind of like want to say that you're black, you know. But then when things get hot, you know, and they, you know when, when the heat starts, starts and the, the pressure comes down on black people, now you're out here saying, well, you know, I'm not black. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm one of my parents is white, so, you know. And I just think that it it just adds to the confusion and it just brings mass confusion. And I, and I will say this and I'll mute myself. And we're getting more and more of these kind of conversations. And it just kind of makes you, you know, what's going on here? Because I, I read a lot of that stuff on Facebook and I hear a lot of it, you know, sometimes in different places. So I just wanted to say that and I'll mute my line. Thank you for taking my call. Indeed. Other folks that we have not heard from at all, let me give out the number one more time, 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, Any folks that we've missed completely, uh, you should speak now. Folks who have a hand up that we have not heard from at all, thought we uh, were missing uh, some hands that we get everybody, everybody who has a hand up we've heard from. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, as, as far as the term uh, non-white or people of color like I hadn't really had anyone um, bring that up to me about I guess they weren't comfortable about the term and I I agree about the uh, emotionalism as far as like how 
victims may respond to it. And it, I, I guess it could come from not having that understanding as to, you know, how the language is so, um, uh, pretty much like made to support the system. And I believe they came up with the term because like I hear it on TV sometimes, non-white on, uh, Fox news that they're talking about, uh, some type of data or some type of statistic or something, you know, and like, I, like, I don't really hear it used that often, but I have heard it used recently, but, um, it's an interesting thing to think about, but it, like, it's, as far as the uh, audio segment, I believe it was one of the stories about the um, white supremacists, I guess, coming to the schools, and it, and like, I'm starting to notice how, and I know they did this before, like maybe within the past year or two, like how they're using that term, white supremacists, and they are aligning it with. Um, you know, them not having a shaved head or, you know, tattoos or something. And I guess they said something about students not, you know, being overwhelmed by it or, you know, or something like that. And one of the, one of the, I believe that was a, a white student they was interviewing saying, oh, well, you know, if you, if you give them a response and that just validates them, maybe she didn't say it like that, but it, it sounded like she may have been trying to uh, minimize the importance the importance of uh, making people aware, of staying focused on it, not really giving them emotional energy, but like she, if that was a, a white person, you know, that's, that could be very uh, suspicious, that type of um, language that she was using. And like, I'm not sure if they were the people that the, the people that was doing the story said that it was a majority minority school or, you know, whatever that you meant. And uh, as far as the, I believe that was the the black female police officer. I think that was in New Orleans, I believe. And she was saying she was overwhelmed about like all of the uh, terrorism she was experiencing and how she caught the, uh, I think that was a, a white person, a white female, a white woman, uh, you know, saying something that was a product of racism. And, you know, she was trying to, disassociate her like oh well not you I didn't mean you you know I've heard that uh, like I've heard that I've seen that pattern myself like once you know they'll say something uh that's uh racist and they'll say to you well I didn't mean you I meant that other black person if you know as a uh you know a nigger or whatever so you know that was very interesting how she was pointing that out and um one one last thing actually what was very interesting was, I believe, when they were talking about how the black males, I guess, uh, here in Florida, were uh, uh, incarcerated for very um, intense charges for being the age of, uh, I guess, what they call a minor. And, you know, when they're told that, you know, that you're always going to be a criminal, and when you, you keep hearing something on repeat, you start to believe it. Um, you know, that was, that was very profound when uh, that person pointed that out because, you know, they, they know how to use psychology and to get us to, um, you know, constantly be uh, pushed into our uh, victimization even further. So uh, that was all that I had to comment on right now, and thanks for allowing me to speak.
Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Uh, did other folks uh, that are listening in have commentary they wanted to share? We miss any? Well, I guess let me start there. Did we miss anybody? Anybody who dialed with a hand up that we missed completely? Got everybody? Spectacular. Spectacular. Uh, and other folks uh, have commentary that they wanted to make sure they were able to share. Even if you spoke already, just if you had additional comments you wanted to share. Yes, hello? Matt? Oh, uh, you can go first. Go ahead. Um, okay, thank you. I'll just be real quick. Um, what I wanted to comment the, the last caller, you know, he said something about, you know, the language that they use, non-black, non-white people of color. And I, I just think it still to me, it just adds confusion. But I think what really is kind of um, disturbing to me is how as black people, how we so quick, like uh, the gentleman said that he heard, I guess, them use a phrase, a phrase on uh, Fox News. And I know like that this people of color, and I'm hearing a lot of black people always talking about that. And then when they're talking about black people, and I can remember one time being on Twitter, this may be about, been about three or four months, and somebody said something about people of color. And this one young lady, she said, um, no, not people of color. She said, black people. She said, they don't even use that term for us. And I came on and I retweeted back. And I'm like, yeah, I agree 100%. And I remember Claude Anderson, he was saying that, you know, that's a term. He said, we need to stay away from that. He said, because basically what that does is that tries to lump us in a group with all these other people. And in a sense, it's trying to say that, well, you know, Nothing, nothing much different has happened to black people. All of them, you know, Asians, Latinos, all the people of color, y'all got the same thing. And it's, it's, you know, and it's just like, no, that's not true. And so I, I have, you know, that's why I say it brings about mass confusion, all these terms, because it's painful that black people, we pick up on this stuff. Then as soon as we hear it, then we say it. Don't even think about it. Uh, the other thing, just like the uh, the story about the uh the young people in, in prison in Florida and say how like the police basically are saying that you're just criminal, you know, and, and it's painful because it comes out of lips on a white skinned face. We, there will be blacks who will hear that and they just believe it. And that, and to me, I think that, that is that, I mean, that's, that's, that's a major psychological damage, you know, that you know, and so that's basically what the police are saying. That's what the prosecutors are saying. Oh, you're just criminal, you know. I mean, it's almost you're a criminal. You stepped outside your door today. You're a criminal, and um, it's just so painful how we so easily believe the things, and how so easily we will um, we will repeat the things. And I'll just throw out this last example, and I'll mute myself. This healthcare thing that this that the Republicans are trying to do. And now you got people, oh, it's Trump care. So now you got people, oh, it's Trump care, it's Trump care. So I was on my Facebook page. I said, well, let's not call it Trump care because he doesn't care. You know, and I'm just like, I don't know. You know, let's just say it's just for health care. They're trying to get health care. But I'm just saying it's it's amazing how easily, and I'm talking about black people, how we're, we so easily pick up on the prevailing language, even when it can do major harm to us as a people by using that language or claiming that language or claiming words to define us that we are not um, putting out words to define us. 
And I'll just say that and I'll mute my line. Thank you for taking my call again. Yes, hello? Yes, sir. Yeah, um, I want to say um, I'm, I'm the one who asked a question about the um, Betty DeVos. Um, I, you know what? You guys changed my position. Um, I wasn't, I really wasn't looking at it like that. That, you know, for one, this woman is, it ain't like she, she just showed up to speak. She's being paid to speak. So that, that really, uh, changes my position. And, um, I, I do agree. It's, it, I mean, they did, uh, display, um, self-respect. Um, I just was, I was just conflicted because, um, I, I just know regardless of if they do or if they don't, um, Financially, when you look financially, when you look at um, the condition of black people, um, you know we still got to negotiate with these people regardless. Um, but something else I wanted to ask: um, there was a viral video going around, and uh, it, it displayed um, white supremacists. Um, I, I feel safe to say I can call them that. Um, Confederate flags in the background. Um, them physically um, beating up a black woman, even going to the extent of uh, urinating on this black woman. I don't know if this video was staged, but um, some two people uh, inboxed me this on social media and asked me to um, repost. They want this video to go viral. I just, I'm just not in to repeatedly um, reposting videos of black people being abused. I think that it can be psychologically damaging. Um, Gus, what, what do you think about um, making these videos, uh, whether it's police shootings or, or uh, some white supremacist uh, beating up on a black woman, black child, uh, black man, and reposting these videos and having these videos go viral? Uh, I just, I don't know if it's the same video, but I mentioned earlier in the broadcast this evening that someone like from, since we began broadcasting live today, someone messaged me on social media uh, with a video of some racists with flagrant white supremacy paraphernalia in the background. Um, like, abusing physically a black female and uh, putting a noose around her neck and everything, uh, similar, similar thing. And I said, you know, Hey, I don't know white people I've seen where they do like racist prank recordings of this sort of thing. Like I've seen where they do that. And I echoing your sentiments, I said that I think it could be, let's try to send this type of content around just to see if we can get black people upset, get their stress up and get them all upset. And is this real? And is, did, did this really happen to somebody? And, and just the, all of that, just to additional stress and just seeing it, the same thing that you compared it to constantly seeing those type of uh, police body cam footage and cell phone footage of a black person being uh, killed or harmed by enforcement officials, that that has an impact, uh, that that's traumatic continuing to see that sort of footage. So I agree. Uh, I did not repost or reshare just because I couldn't authenticate and I had some of the same concerns that you did. Okay. Thanks a lot. I, I definitely, cause that, that's, that's just, that's just my main concern. You know, it's, I mean, to, to, it's, it's, it's to, um, my opinion, it's evidence. Um, racism is out there. Racism has always been out there. White supremacy is the rule of law. Um, 
And it's just, you know, I just basically just want to know how to my day-to-day life of maneuvering around it or confronting it when I can. But as far as me looking at repeated videos or me recording some rights from some random racist white person yelling out the N-word, I'm, I'm really just not for it. Thanks a lot. I'll be one up. Other folks have commentary they wanted to share. Bobby Hood? Can yes. I be heard? Uh, Thomas in New York, and then we'll get Mr. Steele. I'm sorry, Mr. Steele. I'll be quick on this one. Um, cause I just wanted to answer the question real quick. Um, now, see, the way I look at the college students today, and if we could all put ourselves in their mind, uh, if we could go back 20, 30, you know, some cases 40, 50 years, and say, you know, have that level of confusion about racism that they have, and then uncharted territories, because never before in our lives, now this is what they've experienced the last two years of their college lives, is a white man running for president being called a racist every day in mainstream media by other white people, not by black people. Like, they didn't pull out Farrakhan and Jesse and Al to say this guy's, I mean, they pulled out top-notch white people to say he's a bigot, he's a racist, he's biased. I mean, every all the words that we know mean racism, they've called him that for the last two years. And this is what he, this is the person he selected to come speak at their campus. I mean, to them, if I'm on campus with them, I'm going to be looking at this just like the white supremacist group guy who went and spoke at that white campus. I mean, she's, she's, Picked by the races. Um, so th- that's how I look at that. So I don't I feel like they're wrong. Uh, I saw the college, white college students, because a white supremacist group was going to come speak at their campus, I mean, they had a whole pull-out riot on campus. I mean, they had to shut the whole campus down. Nothing could move on campus. Had to move the graduation. Um, so um, um, not a graduation. They had to cancel a, a sporting event or something. But nonetheless... Um, that's how I look at it. So these kids, um, I think they practice black self-respect. And like Gus said, I mean, if, if all she did was got a few booze and people turned their back on her, oh, well, I mean, you know. And um, as far as for what the firefighter said, non-white and white, it says equal to me is like um, victim or non-victim. You know, it's that simple. Um, the white people, either, and, I mean, in, under the system of racism, white supremacy, the only race that matters is white. So you're either white or you're not. Um, you're either a victim of racism, white supremacy, or you're not. And uh, I'll, I'll mute my line. Thank Mr. Steele. Yes, quick? sir. Yes, sir. Awesome. I just wanted to say that um, uh, while I have not seen the video, and I'm, uh, I, I know that we should, uh, you know, keep down on our pride, but I'm proud to have uh, been uh, able to avoid um, what appears to be from all the, the descriptions that I've heard, um, I, it seems to be uh, some sort of a race play hoax. Um, I know that within the uh, within the what they call um, kinky community, and I know that we've covered this on previous discussions, uh, that there's um, a concept known as race play, whereby some victims will elect to um, play out levels of, uh, well, uh, I guess enact, um, extreme victimization, uh, 
by uh, suspected racists on camera. Um, and this is, uh, this is something that is, uh, it's really popular on the internet. And I'm, I'm just aware that this exists. I know that there was a site, um, I don't know if it still exists, it was called Ghetto Gaggers. They also used to produce videos uh, that were similar to this. And I just uh, suggest uh, that victims of racism stay away from uh, these sort of, um, stay away from these, uh, when, stay away from these sort of videos. And when other victims are entering in your inbox and sharing videos, I get suspicious because I'm seeing that more and more, and I'm guessing that this is a way that racists are conditioning us to spread disinformation. And I'm myself. I'm very, very. Uh, I'm very, very. I have a, a almost zero tolerance policy when it comes to people who willingly spread disinformation. Um, I'll immediately unfollow them from social media. I will not uh, uh, try to uh, make uh, too much communication with them. Um, man, they are using all sorts of elements of confusion to harm us. Keep that in mind. Um, stay away from that video. Uh, I'm going to regard it as bogus and fake until I see any sort of news report or police report associated with it. Um, and, uh, yeah, just know that there are a lot of people that engage in uh, very, very uh, twisted forms of entertainment. Hmm. Uh, context of white supremacy. We have a little over a uh, half hour left in the program unless folks decide they have uh, no more commentary. The caller at 5771. Uh, did you have uh, commentary? 5771. Uh, can I be hurt? Yes, sir. Okay. Greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and the listeners. Um, to uh, continue with the theme of <laughs> booing at commencement ceremonies, uh, here in Chicago, uh, at uh, Chicago State University, which uh, is a predominantly uh, the students are predominantly non-white black, uh, their commencement speaker the other day was suspected racist. Uh, Governor Bruce Crowder, and he got the same amount of booze uh, <laughs> at the commencement ceremony. Uh, apparently, uh, uh, Governor Crowder was going to withhold uh, some funds uh, from Chicago State University, uh, which is a state-run university, and they didn't even know that they were going to be uh, even opening for the year. So, uh, yeah, uh, black self-respect to the students at Chicago State University as well uh, for booing Governor Rounder. Also, too, with the, the video that went viral of the racist uh, uh, beaming up and uh, hanging the, the, the black girl, I find it interesting that, uh, you know, I was Googling it, and no law enforcement officials, no law enforcement statements, saying that they're going to investigate it, whether it's a prank or not. I mean, you would think that law enforcement officials would at least investigate it to see where this video came from. Was it a prank? But yeah, there was no, you know, no news of the FBI investigating it or local police or wherever the video was shot. 
because I remember when the the video of uh, the the non-white black males a couple of months ago uh, here in Chicago uh, beat up the or you know supposedly tortured the the white male uh, uh, in the video. There was an immediate investigation launched about it. You know, let's find these neighbors who did this. And it was like, you know, all, all over the news. But, yeah, I, I just find it interesting that, that no law enforcement officials have opened up an investigation in it just to see if the video is real or not. But uh, that's, uh, that was pretty interesting. Uh, that's all I have for now. Right on. I did want to get a, a Cow's Book Club moment in. Uh, people that were with us when we read uh, the late, great Dr. Maya Angelou, uh, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, her autobiography, uh, where she mentions when she was graduating, I think it was eighth grade. Uh, if we have enough time, I might see if I can get the exact page from the book. But she talks about like her eighth grade graduation. They invited like two racists. Uh, to the all-black segregated eighth-grade school in little rickety nowhere, Arkansas. And uh, he came in and said whatever he said, and then, you know, oh, yeah, we spent enough time with these niggers. Let's go. Chop, chop. <laughs> and left them all sitting there. Like, it was a really degrading scene. Uh, in that, Like, this is a long-running tradition. Uh, racists going to an all-black school, college, elementary school, kindergarten, what have you, and giving... Uh, like decades of this, centuries of this, most of these HBCUs are named after white people. Uh, if you you know go down and and look at it, so I mean this has been this is not anything new. Betsy DeVos or anybody else uh, going to give a talk. Uh, and again, if all that was done was a little booing and the lack of uh, I guess giving eye contact, you know, VGQ. Uh, other folks have commentary that they wanted to share. Did we nab uh, everyone? Did they pick up any attention? I know Tom. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I miss someone? Um, um, no, you didn't miss anyone out. This is the other black female from Ohio. Um, you can continue. I just wanted to add one small thing. I'll wait. All right, on. Uh, the detail that I was going to uh, add, Thomas in New York mentioned earlier this. Oh, Pam should be with us on Wednesday. She was supposed to be here this past Wednesday. She had the audacity to schedule a doctor's appointment on the day of the program. So she got her checkup uh, and we just rescheduled to make sure that, you know, it wouldn't be any conflict with schedule, but she will be with us this coming uh, Wednesday, 8 PM Eastern, 5 PM Pacific will be grand uh, to have her back. Uh, I was also going to say, I have been Gusty Renegade. I have been to Chicago state. Uh, I to it. I've been to Chicago a couple times. It was cold every time. I've never been to Chicago in the winter or the fall. It was always cold, even in the summertime. <laughs> um, the uh, comment that I was uh, going to get in Thomas in New York mentioned that there was a reportedly a rape, I think of a white woman in New York. And he was wondering if that got a lot of attention. I have checked the New York Times pretty regularly. I have not seen it. I will not say that I've read every article since he mentioned this, but I have not seen it like it. It certainly has not been like the front, you know, top news issue uh, in the Times. Uh, I have not seen it posted or talked about uh, big time anyway in other places. Nobody's posted anything on my Facebook timeline or 
um, email to my knowledge. Um, I guess you can let us know if that has become a big thing or if that's something maybe that's just local to uh, New York. But I did try to pay attention to that as well. Uh, the female caller in Ohio, much obliged for your patience. What was your commentary? Um, yes, thank you. Uh, the only thing I wanted to add, I was um, just back on the other story that I was talking about. I was looking up because they still they're still not really releasing that many facts about it and um, about the shooting at the nursing home. And I noticed that they were using tragedy a lot. Not even really some news sites not even bringing up the fact that. This all happened because he was mad about the female that he could not, or the white woman that he could not abuse anymore. She had restraining orders against him, stuff like that. He actually took hostages, and then I found out he took his own life. So that's also just another thing that um, just really makes me, that, that's definitely more proof that, you know, racism is just not something that was in the past, especially when it comes to even local news. Um, the other thing that I wanted to bring up was that um, I was out getting some food, and I ended up getting into a conversation with a uh, another non-white black female just about hair because we are we both have natural hair, and um, it definitely made me feel good because I know that we have talked on the broad or people have talked about on the broadcast before about how. Um, not to really bring up racism to victims, especially ones that you don't know, and just, you know, start off with something simple. I know before you had said, like, you know, maybe just start off with movies or whatever. And so um, just being a, a black female, just starting out with hair and not, you don't necessarily have to go into so much racism, but it's still just kind of um, maybe just, you know, speak about, I guess, black issues, if you would call it that. And so that definitely made me um, feel good in it. In it. I feel like it, um, I don't know, I guess, I guess that's it. Um, thank you. Right on. Black self-respect. That's always great when you can have some constructive dialogue with uh, another black person. That is outstanding. And we do have a number of listeners who they do not take that that's not their counter racist code. They say, Hey, we don't have time to waste. Black people have major problems. So they, you know, make talking about racism directly. Uh, they make that a top priority, like something that they bring up, even if it's a black person that they don't know, uh, if they're meeting them for the first time, that's something that they do talk about and address in some way, shape, form. So right on. Other folks have commentary that they uh, wanted to share. Uh, make sure you do not wait till the last minute. Uh, if you are listening in, think you have a question or a comment that you would like to share, watch the background noise also, please. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes. Um, I just wanted to um, go over this um, report I had sent you uh, on the drug use and music mm. study that was done, which I thought was quite compelling. And um, very revealing. I'm and pulling as, it up right now. Early, yeah, as I stated earlier, um, 92% of the arrests for marijuana in New York were black, non-white people. Um, so um, in, in this thing, they studied eight genres of music, which included hip-hop, which included um, folk music, 
um, jazz, pop, electronic music, rock music, and other, and including rap. Um, and what they found out was the music that had the least references to drug use was hip-hop music, rap music. Um, the music with the most references to drug music was, um, I'm pulling it up myself here. <laughs> uh, country. Country music. Country music was number one. The references of drug use, the most white music. And I think Ken Still brought up last week that um, the country singer, Darling, um, this is um, Miley Cyrus was talking about how the hip-hop music was too, too much for her now. She's going back to country. So um, country, number one for drug use. Jazz was number two. And we know that jazz has been taken over by white people. They completely run that industry. Um, pop, which is them. Electronic, which is them. Rock, which is them. Other, which is mostly them. And um, folk music, which how does folk music even have less... I listen to rap music, and they talk about a lot of drugs. Folk music has more drug references than hip-hop. And I thought that was compelling. Also with this show, you always talk about metaphors, Gus, and of course rap, you have to use metaphors. But... um. In hip-hop, the number one drug they talked about was weed, which is usually smoking. And then number two was cocaine, which is usually they talk about selling. And then number three was meth. And I'm like, how the heck? Where did, what kind of rap do they talk about meth? I listened to all types of hip-hop, never heard anyone talk about meth. And then when they went to the artists, it's another article I should have sent as well. They talk about the artists that lead each category. The number one artist mentioned in meth was method men. That's at all. He's using meth as a metaphor for him being the drug, you know, but um, number two was Wu-Tang Clan. So I said, okay, that's why they say the most references to meth is, you know, hip-hop, but um, we're not even there either, if you ask me. So I'll meet my line thinking. Just wacky. I'll post this uh, report if folks want to check it out. Our female caller who uh, graciously helped out and sent content for my article. Thank you kindly. You should be with us as well. Hello? Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, good evening, everyone. I guess just wanted to give guess a couple little updates. Last week, I think I asked about, you know, housing. I found a black mortgage person, of course. I asked him to find, help me find a black realtor. In the meantime, they're sending me houses that are not in, I think, pure black neighborhoods. But I think here, making the black people live all over the place. So I have to inquire about that when I talk to him to ask him about why he sent me these particular homes, which are lovely, but, you know, so I have to find out about that. Number two, I am the same person that had the issue with the transgender person. School is out for the summer. So I probably might not update that to the fall unless I have an opportunity to go down to the school and talk to someone about that. So I have to put that on the shelf. Um, but um, so I did want to give those two updates on that. And that um, I had, I guess, a question about the article, the story with Mr. Desmond. I wonder why, I'm sure you don't know because you're not him, but why, like, the Talk, the conversation was with a white lady, and you know she sounded all sympathetic. But in the in the um, clip, I heard her say, "Well, I want to ask you some questions too." So I'm wondering, was she really sympathetic, or was it like, "Well, I'm a quid pro quo"? Well, I'm sorry, 
well, I guess quick pro quo, that's what it's called, you do for me, I do for you, type of situation, because she wanted to ask some questions, too, to get her article in place or whatever. And while that article was being, um, being played, I went online, and I guess that the Toronto Star has a public editor where she addresses people's issues, and she put out some article that, I don't know how she meant it, but specifically said, if you're black, you cannot be a part of the story, but if you're white, you can. And she says that explicitly. So, that's it. Thank you. Very interesting. I have to uh, check that. Her name I, is Kathy English. Kathy English. Okay. I'll have to check. I can send it to you because I found it. Oh, okay. I can just send it to you. That'll work. When she sends this to me, I'll post it. Heart. I'll post it on my Facebook page for you all as well. But that incident, like I said, with Desmond Cole, um, was near and dear to me for many uh, reasons, but Naomi Klein uh, is very well known. She's like a best-selling author. Uh, she wrote Shock Doctrine, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, so she's like, uh, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of a white person here that I would compare her to. Maybe the white guy that wrote Economic Hitman. I forgot his name, but might be comparable. This is another white person that started up as being really cool. She's on Democracy Now. Uh, one of my BFF, Amy Goodman. Uh, but yeah, so <clears throat> she's like someone in her own right, right, coming on his platform uh, to be interviewed. And then it seemed like they knew each other because she said uh, someone who knows and loved you, like it was a very personal tone that they had for such a serious uh, topic and two people who you know talk about serious things like these guys are not comedians. This female and this male, they are not comedians. Uh, so it, just the tone of it, like I said, she says, you know, I love you, someone who who loves you, and I'm just so happy that you're in a better place. Like it had such a just pleasant, like we're on the couch just talking as chums. Um, yeah, just it stood out as very strange, very peculiar in a lot of ways. And maybe another illustration of a good white person, not thinking of this white person as a racist. And again, as you pointed out, she ends up interviewing him. This is his program. He's the host. He's supposed to be asking her questions, but it changes. She's asking him questions. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Oh yeah. This is what I call for as well. Um, my little complex where I live, there was, I guess a change in ownership, or I don't know, some kind of change. And so my rent hadn't been collected because it was collected automatically. So I emailed, I didn't know there was a change, so I emailed the previous people. I'm like, you know, why aren't you taking the money out, blah, 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 what's going on, blah, blah, blah. So then I go outside. Now now there's a note on my door saying, oh, we there was a change. We understand some people didn't get notified if you don't give us our money by such such day you're going to charge late rent. And I'm like, well, I didn't know about this. So I called the office. I talked to the lady, white lady. I'm telling her, well, this is not my fault, blah, 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 this and the other. You have to get the money orders. So I know money orders don't cost a lot, but this isn't my fault. So I was like, oh, you know, who's going to pay for my money order? i got to go through all these changes, blah, 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 this, that, and the other. And so she got to ask, she was like, well, I'll pay it then, blah, blah, blah. And so, of course, I did make her pay it. I said, of course whatever she gave me my money and I gave her a change and then so I asked her well why did you just all send an email you have our email addresses blah 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 I filled out all this when I started 
this and she's like, Well, I don't know, I'm com- not computer savvy, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, This is great. Another white idiot who gets to keep her job and their incompetence is just it was I don't know, maybe it's just me, it was just mind blowing. If you have anyone's email list, they give you the email, you send out an email, you send out certified mail so people don't forget this. It's not like you don't know where they live. They live in the complex. You send out a certified letter to everyone so they can't lie about this. And then when I go there to pay, there's a note about the water being shut off. I'm like, well, when are you going to let us know this? I put it on every door. I go, well, it's not on my door. And so their incompetence, you know. I know they're supposed to be smarter than us because they're white supremacists, and, but their incompetence sometimes just knows no bounds. <sighs> I guess the, <clears throat> excuse me, this is something we talk about on workplace racism a lot. White people, racists on the job, they don't do their job, and then that causes all kinds of problems for uh, the black person. These whites not doing their job, and we, we talked about this. The only thing I say in those situations is that uh, I'm not always certain that it is white incompetence. It could be just they're practicing racism, uh, anything, even if it's uh, a white person seemingly not doing their job or they don't know how to do their job or they're messing things up. <clears throat> it, when that th- those mess ups <clears throat> have an adverse impact on black people, I just assume that, hey, this could just be you deliberately doing this to practice racism. That's all I would submit. But uh, I've seen a long pattern of that sort of thing, particularly with housing, withholding constructive information uh, like they struggle to get in touch with you to share. Oh, you know, we've had a change and how business is going to be done. This is the new way to make sure that everything happens on time. Like <clears throat> I've seen where white people can be very professional and expedient about that when they're dealing with other whites, when they really want to uh, just seems like for some reason, when they're dealing with darker people, the service, the customer service and relations gets really, really bad. I'll stop there. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, context of white supremacy. We have about 20 minutes left unless everybody is uh, satisfied and, and has nothing to share. Uh, did folks have additional commentary they wanted to get in? Yes, sir. I just wanted to know uh, if anybody else saw this report of uh, seemingly uh, middle-aged white female uh, that got thrown into the uh, the pool of the uh, apartment complex, I believe she stayed in. Apparently, a uh, bunch of non-white black uh, teenagers, uh, maybe slightly older than teenage years also, were, I, I just know it was a big crowd uh, of of non-white black people and then uh she came up to uh to tell them they're making too much noise and uh one of the uh teenagers black males picked her up picked her up and dropped her at first on the concrete and then picked her up and threw her in the pool uh just to go to show you on when we do something to a white person on how swift the consequences are uh he didn't even wait for to get captured by the by the uh by law enforcement his mother turned him in uh they walked into the police station i believe uh and then they showed another excerpt of the white female uh because she had her dogs with her when she got uh, thrown in the pool 
and they dog just took off and they showed another picture of her afterwards walk just calmly walking around with her dogs you know that sort of thing and uh if anybody else saw that and if so uh give me your thoughts on on that I guess not. <laughs> well, <laughs> Mary Heard. I've seen the video. Oh, okay. <laughs> caller in, <clears throat> excuse I haven't seen the video, so I can't comment. The caller in Ohio, uh, were you going to respond? Okay. Yes, uh-huh, thank you. Um, I saw the video, and, you know, I just really felt like the, the young man just really didn't have any business putting his hands on, on the woman because he, he called himself pick her up. It, dropped it was very silly. It, it was very silly. Right. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. right. Uh-huh. And I thought, I thought she had hit her head when he dropped it. And all I remember, I said, oh, my God. And, and then, you know, he threw her in the pool. And I, and I, and I'm just be honest. I said, there, I said, he, he going to do some time. He's going to, he's basically cut his life off, you know, because it's just like, you know, I, and I'm sitting up in the class and I'm, you know, I'm thinking to, you know, black people, particularly this younger generation, what part of this are you not getting as to what's going on out here in the streets with us, and particularly with young black males? It's just like you had no business touching that woman. I don't know if she's out there, and, and clearly from what the what, uh, the fire, uh, excuse me, retired firefighter is saying, is that, you know, she's fine now. I mean, you know, cause, and, but it's just like what part of this are you not getting? You just ignore that and go on about your business. I mean, because when he touched her, I was, just, I was just like, wow. And I remember I was on Facebook and I saw it, and my question was like, well, why is she there? If the party's out of control, you know, I said to myself, I said, well, you know, because she could have called the police. You know, you know here, here you go. It is white chip in me kicking in because I'm like, but then again, maybe she said, well, if I call the police, to say to really get out of hand. So I'm going to go down there and, 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 you know, try to solve the thing. You see, that's my white chip that, you know. Just pray for pray pray for your girl. That's what I was just saying. That's what you know. I'm kind of thinking because I'm just like, well, why is she there? Why did she not let or you know knock on some doors it's like the children? Because I understand the party was out of control and get the parents out there to help get this thing back under control. But when he touched her, like I said, when he picked her up, because I thought he, he he dropped her and I thought she had hit her head. I'm like, oh my goodness! And then he threw her in the pool, and I was just like, oh my goodness! And I just it was just foolishness on his behalf and the only other thing I could think of that though too is what this is what happens crowds the animosity of being in a crowd or being in a crowd and getting caught up into things that say if it was just you or a couple of people with you you may not have done that so I did see it I I just think it was just a very bad move on his part and I'll move my line with that Uh, it, it also is, it's in my opinion, an example of white people not really being afraid of us. Uh, she was very bold, uh, and her, even her manners of, 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 uh, what she did is walk right up in the middle of, and it had to, it looked to be about at least about 30 or 40, uh, non-white, uh, black teenagers. Uh, and stated, uh, stated, uh, you really couldn't hear the audio, but you could see her in her mannerisms, what she was, you know, right in the middle of them. And, uh, 
and she was quite calm or even 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 uh in the interview quite calm on the interview that she suffered bruises uh according to the report and and she allowed the the news people to also to could see her afterwards in the aftermath oh well i'm going about my business and still walking my dogs and uh those niggers back knuckle but but i think eventually in time because it looked like so many uh black people that's at this that this pool party that uh she probably would end up moving you know uh from it you know from the place but uh but uh, the, the results were swift, was very swift uh, on 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 uh, this uh, black male, which is um, normal. Yeah, and let me just say this because I, I like like when you said how she just basically walked up, you know, because we know at a, at a time that would have been the case. You just walked up right into him, just you know, like she didn't care. And I think though that today though is because, and I do think this this is quote unquote. Trump's America, we're in this environment now. And I think the other thing, too, is that the police are a weapon to us now. I, I mean, what we're looking at with this police brutality is, is nothing new. I think we all on this phone, on this conference, on this call can say it's nothing new. It has always been like this. But it seems like there are periods of time when, when that goes down, you know what I'm saying, the intensity of it. Well, it's back with a vengeance now. And it's just like, because they are a weapon to us. And so she, as an older woman, or she just as a white woman, knows that what the police is going to be on my side. If I call them out here, you know, they're going to be on my side, and I'll get swift action. So therefore, you know, I can be bold enough to walk up through them and, you know, sling my tongue around, you know what I'm saying, get out of here, blah, 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 blah. and I don't have to worry about them, because if they do anything to me, the police will move swiftly on my behalf. And, and, and they know that. They, and, and I truly believe they know that. I mean, you know, we've seen past incidents right after Trump giving back to people in, uh, what's that coffee place, Starbucks shot with the one man in there hollering, you know, I voted for Donald Trump. You know, the one lady at, was someplace else, and I think the lady told her she would have to pay a dollar, I guess, for the bag. And the woman calls the police, accusing the black woman of discriminating against her. Talking like this, you know, I voted for Donald Trump, and blah blah blah. And then I, I would say this, not through. I saw a video yesterday of, of, of on Facebook and some from white guy, and he's uh, in front of, in front of this guy who they said was a Muslim, and saying that. Donald Trump's going to get you. He's going to get you. I mean, it, this was some of the craziest stuff. So I'm just saying that this is the environment that we're in now. So she can walk through a crowd of a thousand black people and, you know, with this smugness about, oh, they will come swiftly and they're going to be on my side, even if I walked in here and I started this problem. And they know that. And, and at this point in time, it is in their favor. So, you know, thanks. I'll read myself. Uh, just one thing with the this article that was mentioned about Desmond Cole, I think this is a satire. Um, the article, it's journalists should only become the news if they are white Toronto star public editor. I think this is a satire uh, pretending to be Kathy English, uh, a white woman who works at the Toronto star. But this was written by Luke Gordon Field. Uh, and I think this is a satire piece. This, this is, I've long said I'm not a fan of satire uh, because there's a lot of this and sometimes it can be confusing to figure out 
if, you know, this is a legitimate, you know, piece of writing or if this is somebody trying to be funny. Uh, and sometimes they are deliberately deceitful with that. Like, you know, so you can't really tell. But I think this is a satire that this is not uh, from this is not written by. Kathy English, the white woman at Toronto star. This is a satire uh, poking fun uh, and just calling them out for being racist uh, with this policy. I think that's what it is, but I'll share it anyway. But if folks, if you come to a different conclusion, that's fine. Let me know. But I think that this is a satire. Other folks have commentary they wanted to get in last few minutes uh, before we conclude. Hey, Gus, if I could just uh, also um, back to the college students, and just to add on to the, the you know, the confusion they're dealing with in, in the psyche they're in, and uh, once again, this is uncharted territory, because normally it'll be Farrakhan and um, Al and Jesse, and a, or you you know, even a polite or a, a Umar, but you had uh, Representative John Lewis come out and say he's not qualified to be the president on TV, like, I mean, and, and then you heard Maxine Waters come out and say, oh, he needs to be um, impeached. I mean, it's like, just the level of, of what they're allowing black, they never allow black people to get on TV and make these statements before. So these kids are, are I'm, I'm sure, in, in some sense, feeling like they have a sort of empowerment. They, they have a voice that can be heard. Um, unlike generations before where, where our voice was always shut down, um, uh, when it comes down to him, they've let black people say pretty much what they wanted to say. And um, I think these kids are growing up in that climate. I think uh, I think in general, um, white people, because they are in charge, I think we pay attention to a lot of, of the way that whites function. And I think, as you stated before, so many whites have said that Donald Trump is racist. Some of them have even said he's white supremacist and his whole administration, uh, attorney general and everybody else, including uh, Betsy Devo. So I think that has had a huge impact. Uh, and it reminds me a little bit of uh, George W. Bush um, when uh, in that era, I think they were not certainly not to the degree that you have now, but even then, I think there were a, a, a significant number of whites, especially around the time of Katrina. There were a solid number of whites who were saying, oh, yeah, that guy's racist. Look at what he did to the niggers down there in uh, New Orleans. Kanye West, he doesn't like black people. I think it was there was a good bit of that then, just a lot more of it now. But I think it generally whites, they are the ones who uh, kind of initiate uh, we look to them in terms of what's acceptable, how much you can say, how much you will be allowed to criticize and how aggressive you can be with your criticism. And I think uh, whites with Donald Trump, like, wow, they, as you stated, they are allowing all kinds uh, of criticism commentary. It's, it's almost you can say whatever you like uh, in criticism of, of Donald Trump. Anybody else commentary uh, before we get ready to wrap up? Everyone satisfied? I assume everybody uh, got their commentary in. We should be here on Wednesday uh, for Pam. Uh, we'll be grand to have her back on the program. First time uh, in the 2017 calendar year, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Central. Uh, workplace racism will be this Thursday, and we will have our Global Sunday talk on racism uh, a week from tomorrow. We'll be looking forward. I'm even going to see if we can get uh, Marquise down in Brazil to see if we can get him to join 
uh, for next Sunday. Uh, if folks uh, have questions, uh, if you have problems finding something in the archives, uh, if you have a guest suggestion, gripe, feel free, drop an email until justice at gmail.com. I got so much help last week when I posted that I was going to write the article on uh, white women uh, being at the, the center of the school to prison pipeline. So many people uh, mailed articles and resources. It was super, super helpful. Uh, and folks uh, shared again this time. If you think of anything uh, in terms of uh, either articles, guests who've had commentary about uh, not praising whites who have worked against racism, or if you can think of a book, or if you just have a thought you would like to include, you can email me Facebook either, or uh, will be great. Uh, I'll be working on this tomorrow. So you have time. If you think about it tonight and wake up and have an idea tomorrow, feel free to drop an email uh, with that. Thanks everyone uh, for tuning in. I hope it's been a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. I know the weather is getting nice. It was lovely here today in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so I, I know it's got to be nice uh, in a lot of places uh, as it gets closer to summertime. You do not want to lax in your codification. Uh, even when you're out and about, you want to be paying attention. Uh, anything uh, could happen in your area around you. Just be mindful uh, and sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, you do not want to be out enjoying your sunshine and all that be intoxicated and then have to deal with a race soldier badge or no man. There are so many examples uh, of things in a very brief amount of time I'm talking seconds where things can go drastically wrong keep that in mind I've seen no evidence that us being under the influence uh, helps us to better negotiate use words uh, we have to be stopped by an enforcement official or just a white person period uh, I think you want to be sober clear thinking so that you can make great decisions to keep yourself as safe as possible Keep that in mind. Uh, with that, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus.